You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 420. Listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at the socially distant APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 9th of April, 2020. episode, new information on a Shanghai Airlines tail strike in China. 30,000 Boeing employees face unemployment because of COVID-19. More news, your feedback, and in today's plane tales, the Battle of Auchon. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger. Flight 420 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He's an Emmy Award-winning TV and radio reporter, currently at the number one all-news station in the nation, 1010 Winds in New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, uh, used to be in the Air Force and now a captain for a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, Georgia, which we like to call here Acme Airlines. And joining me today... From her lakeside home in the Carolinas, doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. It is so great to see you guys today. Really looking forward to today's show. Great to see you as well. And also joining us. From his studio in the English countryside, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired captain for an international airline based in London, it's Captain Nick. Good evening, Jeffrey. Lovely to be uh, joining you from the United Kingdom uh, on a beautiful day. Uh, it's such a shame we're stuck in doors. Yes, it is a shame. And also joining us from... Northwest Atlanta suburbs, barbecue master, motorcycle rider, pleasure boat skipper, underwater photographer, and captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier, and apparently he has just been diagnosed with COVID-19. Captain Dana. Uh, hello, guys. Uh, it's not the COVID-19. Oh, it's no, no. It's Corona not. Extra. The Corona Extra virus. That's right. <laughs> You'd have so to see it has nothing. It has nothing to do with the virus. It has everything to do with my get-up today. But great <laughs> to be here and just one of the bring some cheer and happiness to everybody and know during these bad times so let's have some fun let's do that all right and before we have too much fun let's go ahead and start off with the news stand by for news All 
All right. First, I'll say two of the stories that we're going to talk about in the news today are actually uh, incidents, accidents that occurred quite some time ago. Uh, The first one is an example of that. This happened nearly 10 years ago. Uh, a, and this is from um, Venezuelan um, Accident Investigatory Agency that apparently had their accident investigation website offline for, for many, many years. And uh, Simon over at the Aviation Herald finally, just a few days ago, got reports on some of these accidents. Uh, this first one is a Conviaza Aerospecial ATR 42300. Registration, Yankee Victor 1010, performing flight uh, 2350 from Porlamar to Puerto Ordaz in Venezuela with 47 47 passengers and four crew. Uh, Impacted ground ground about nine kilometers, five nautical miles from the airport of Puerto Ordaz while attempting an emergency landing. 17 people, including the captain, first officer, one flight attendant, perished. And 34 people survived with injuries injuries of varying degrees. The local governor of the state of Bolivar said in the afternoon, Venezuelan time, that the crew reported control problems while on approach arriving from Porlamar and then loss of control shortly before impact. Uh, ground witnesses reported that the airplane attempted to return to the airport but got entangled with a high-voltage line before impacting ground. Although the airplane fell into a crowded area, there have been no casualties and injuries on the ground. On the 4th of April 2020, uh, this is where Simon kind of pimps the Venezuelan (laughs) uh, government, Uh, after the Venezuelan website for the accident investigation came back online after a few years, the Aviation Herald got a hold of the final report in Spanish, dated December 31st, 2015. The report Mentioned, uh, I guess, the JIAAC, uh, which is the investigatory agency in Venezuela, uh, concluded that the probable cause, probable cause of the accident was the malfunction of the centralized crew alert system, the CCAS slash CAC, with erroneous activation of the stall warning system. So here's the uh, narrative. Uh, The JIAAC reported that the crew had already flown two sectors on the accident aircraft that day. The aircraft departed for the accident flight with 47 passengers and four crew. After departure from Porlamar, the aircraft climbed to flight level 150, deviated around weather en route, and was 64.1 nautical miles away from Puerto Ordaz when the crew alerted Macuieta or Macuieta. Keisha, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. You have any idea, uh, Steph? May I, may I quit? Maikietia. Hold on. I, I say Maikietia. My, okay. Maikietia. Maikietia. All right. We're going to call it M Control of a control problem and requested to descend to flight level 110. Uh, M Control alerted Puerto Ordaz Tower via telephone about the incoming emergency aircraft descending through flight level 135. The crew reported on Puerto Ordaz's tower frequency requesting priority and stating they had a failure in the controls. Tower advised runway 7 was active and cleared the flight to fly directly to Puerto Ordaz. 20 nautical miles from Puerto Ordaz, the crew reported they were descending through flight level 060, 6,000 feet, heading directly towards runway 7. 15 nautical miles from the airport, the crew called Mayday, Mayday, Mayday at about 3,000 feet, Tower radioed uh, acknowledgement of the Mayday 
uh, but did not receive any response. The crew of another aircraft asked for help by tower was not able to establish contact either. An aircraft waiting for takeoff on the ground at Puerto Ordaz informed tower smoke was rising in the approach path of runway 7. Tower requested the airborne aircraft that had attempted to establish contact to overfly the scene, and the crew confirmed that an uh, aircraft had crashed at the location that was on fire. Tower immediately activated the airport's emergency response prepared for aircraft accidents. The captain was 62 years old, uh, air transport pilot uh, license. They're not sure um, how many hours he had total and hours on type because there were no records found prior to 2006. Uh, he was assisted by a first officer, 38 years old, commercial pilot license, 1,038 hours total, 483 hours on type. The aircraft had been built in 1994 and registered in Venezuela for Conviasa in November of 2006. The uh, JIAAC analyzed in the final minutes that the crew received an oral cricket sound or uh, here. Oh, I can do that right here, right? I have a cricket, I think. Yeah, never mind. Here we go. I don't think it's probably like that. Some kind of a sound that sort of sounds like crickets, uh, which is the stall warning, uh, as well as the stick shaker activation. The first officer called, wait, wait, and pushed the control column forward. The captain pulled the control column back in order to prevent the aircraft from descending. Uh, The aircraft was flying at a normal speed and in a normal attitude at the time. The warning should not have been activated as the aircraft was not close at all to any boundary of the flight envelope. The first officer called, stick shaker, stick shaker, go, stop the stick shaker, go. The captain replies, it is faulty. The first officer subsequently noticed the amber fault light on the stick shaker had activated and replied, Okay, go on, pull. The JIAAC analyzed the fault light of the stick shaker, indicated a malfunction of the CAC computer. The procedures would require to press the fault light, which would deactivate the stick shaker and stick pusher. The captain instructed the first officer to press that light. However, the warnings continued. If the button was indeed pressed by the first officer, that means that the, there was a fault condition and, and that was still present and was intermittent. The CAC monitors both angle of attack vanes and compares them. If a difference of more than four degrees exists between them, an according fault condition is generated. If that fault condition does not exist, the values of both AOA vanes are averaged. If that value exceeds the critical angle of attack, the stick shaker is activated. 24 seconds after the stick shaker activated, the pitch controls were uh, activated. The pitch controls were decoupled. And the according warning, the left and right pitch controls were disconnected, sounded. Each pilot was now controlling the elevator of his side. Captain, the left elevator, first officer, the right elevator. The investigation assumes that the controls were disconnected because both pilots provided different inputs on the pitch. This would require the pilots to coordinate so that the elevators are moved in sync. However, the situation was complicated by the fact that the pilots were fighting each other, providing counteracting control forces. The captain applied significant efforts and force to maintain level flight. Post-impact investigation revealed the stick pusher on the left side was in a nose-down position. Several simulations at the aircraft manufacturer revealed that due to the force applied onto the elevator, it was impossible to maintain level flight with the stick pusher activated. Um, Simon adds to this report, um, again, from the Aviation Herald. 
the report does not really make clear what caused the final departure from level flight. The first officer reacted to the stall warning, pushed the yoke forward. The captain pulled against and tried to explain to the first officer that the stall warning was faulty. The first officer subsequently discovered the stick shaker fault light, but from there it is unclear whether he stopped pushing the controls forward. In the analysis section, but not the factual section, the nose-down position of the stick pusher is mentioned, as well as the simulator tests conducted at the manufacturer, which raise the uh, indeed the impression with me, Simon, that in the end, the mayday call occurred when the stick pusher activated and they went down as a result. It remains unclear whether the stall fault light button was pressed or whether the fault was intermittent and persistently recurring. I read the contributing fact, or I read the contributing factors in the conclusion as the button was not pressed. Wow, what a what a crazy wow. um, accident uh, here! And again, it's it's all about, and we, we this seems to be a recurring theme: uh, a confusion about what the state of the aircraft is in, and getting a warning, a, a, a false warning. And reacting to the warning without really stepping back and thinking about what is happening with the airplane. Yeah, but only one of them seemed to have done that. The captain seemed to have a pretty good grasp on what was going on, but he seemed unable to convince his first officer that he had the situation under control. And uh, it obviously ended up with them both fighting with the controls to the point where they disconnected the uh, elevators and had one each. Now, that's, I have no idea why you would design an aircraft to do that. I guess there must be some reason for it, but at the moment it escapes me. But it, considering they weren't acting in harmony, once that happened, I can't see them being able to coordinate those two elevators to keep the aircraft under control. So uh, a dreadful conclusion. But uh, it just goes to show that uh, if you don't, have trust and um, you don't have the ability to communicate with the guy beside you, uh, then things can escalate really quickly. And go ahead, Daniel. Yeah. The pilot command is in pilot, the pilot command, unless he's doing something completely erroneous, the first officer should do exactly what they're supposed to do. And that is state their opinion and, and um, move on from there. But the captain obviously had it under control and the first officer felt that he was empowered to try to take control of the aircraft for some reason. I don't know what his thinking is there. And I, you know, we don't have actually have the transcripts. I didn't actually read, of course, I don't read Spanish either. So I couldn't really read the uh, accident report in Spanish, but I gather from the fact that it's not mentioned in this uh, article on the Aviation Herald, that at no point did the captain say, I have the airplane, I have the aircraft, let go of the controls. I have, you know, I think that if that had happened, I think, you know, we wouldn't be reading about this. Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah, it's an extremely good point. Um, why on earth, when he felt the uh, first officer come onto the controls uh, with him and start opposing him, unless he misunderstood what was happening, didn't realize that the first officer was also trying to put an input in, um, yeah, then, yeah, that would be my first reaction. Why are you trying to fly the airplane? I I have control. That would be the right. first thing I'd be shouting at him. Yeah, relinquish the controls. Get you know, Let go of the controls. Yeah. I have the airplane. I, I pull out Dana's uh, baseball bat and give him a wipe <laughs> over the head with yeah, it. He's, there he's, you go. Uh, yeah. It, yeah. it would have been over real quick if I was a captain. Let me tell yeah. you. Yeah, good man. He'd be but, strong. You know, <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, and you leave it alone. Am, am uh, I understanding this right? Because they did not press the button to discontinue the warnings that continued to allow the stick shaker and stick pusher to activate. That was okay. Correct. Yeah, and I think the stick pusher, I guess, has so much authority that yeah, they couldn't. The captain couldn't. It. Yeah, yeah. So. And of course, he was only using the left elevator. So I'm thinking, you know, if you have like the elevator on one side going up and the other going down, I mean, would that cause some kind of a rolling moment as well? It seems like it would. Probably. Probably. I wouldn't have thought there would be enough. There is. They're not very far out, are okay, they? So they're only not. like ten feet out. So basically, the they'd be like canceling each other, perhaps. Yeah, I think I think a bit like in the Airbus. Uh, you know, if one pilot pulls back, the other guy pushes forward. The control um, inputs are summed, so that nothing happens. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it would be a similar thing, except aerodynamic rather than through a computer. I just want to pick on up on something you said, Nick, and that is why would an airplane have the ability to break away controls from each side? And that is uh, yeah. Please explain if you know. Yeah, well, that is, is true with our aircraft too. On the eighty-eight and ninety, you can go ahead. Well, like let me sp- the ninety. Let me step back on that one. The eighty-eight for sure. The ninety, I cannot remember to be honest with you right now. But yeah, you can you can break if if you have a jam cable. All right, so you can break break away the side and be able to actually control. And it's a lot of pressure. I think it's like 70 pounds. Yeah, a lot of force. Yeah, a lot of force, 70, 75 pounds worth of force. But you can break it away so that way you can still fly the aircraft with one of the control columns. Uh, a, lot okay. of, a lot of the older aircraft, uh, you know, I'm trying to remember the right. Brasilia. I think the Brasilia were able to do sense. that. Yeah, a lot if of the you, old If you get a jam cable, yeah, that makes yeah. a lot of I think things. all the conventionally controlled air, airplanes do that. Even I think yeah. the 727 did. I th- I'm not sure about the L-1011, I don't remember. Well, I've never flown one of those conventional airplanes. What, oh, what I know. are conventional you're airplanes? You're you just mean a, old ones? Yeah. He's well, so you've flown old, old airplanes. <laughs> <laughs> you're an old man, you've flown old airplanes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, yeah, he's pretty old, so that would be appropriate. <sighs> okay. <laughs> Are we finished with this one? Yes. Thank yeah, you. it's just taken a long time to get to us. I'm glad <laughs> finally they found out how, uh, what happened. Yeah, me too. And there, we have uh, not this one, but the, you know what? Let's do this. Let's go to C because that's also another accident that occurred in Venezuela and also another one that occurred quite some time ago. This one was on the, Febu- on the 21st of February 2008. So that was even longer ago than the one we just talked about. Again, uh, Simon mentions that he didn't get this information until the 4th of this month. 40 minutes prior to scheduled departure of flight 518, the traffic department ordered the boarding of flight 518 to commence without consulting and release by the flight or cabin crew. Neither flight crew nor cabin crew were on board. Four minutes later, so I guess they're boarding passengers and none of the crew are on the airplane. Four minutes later, the flight attendant arrived at the aircraft. Seven minutes prior to scheduled departure, the flight crew entered the cockpit. Okay, think about that. Seven minutes prior to the scheduled departure, the flight crew entered the cockpit and immediately turned the battery switch on, skipping the checklists for final cockpit preparation and the before checklists. Two minutes later, the crew requested engine start, which was authorized. However, the engines were already running at the time, according to the cockpit voice recorder. That's weird. (laughs) Who started the engines? That's weird. Uh, two minutes and 42 seconds after the cockpit crew entered the cockpit, tower cleared the aircraft to taxi <laughs> and with an incoming aircraft out at eight nautical miles. Tower instructed the aircraft to expedite taxiing. 
Okay. So you, you see the setup. They just show up and they get on the airplane and less than three minutes has elapsed since they gotten on the airplane and they're uh, getting um, clearance to taxi to the runway. While taxiing, the captain, uh, 37 years old, air transport pilot license, 5,053 hours total, 3,883 hours on type, recognized they had not aligned the AHARS, the uh, Attitude Heading Reverence System, uh, for not being stationary for three minutes and voiced concern. However, he decided to reset the AHARS in flight and, in the meantime, continue with visual operation. According to the manual of the Honeywell AHZ-6000 system, um, in use, takeoff in basic flight mode. Okay, that was the system in use. Takeoff in basic flight mode with AHARS inoperative is not recommended. Four minutes after the flight crew entered the cockpit, the flight crew is cleared for takeoff from runway 24. The captain again emphasized that the AHARS is in fault mode and that they would realign it once they were airborne. Again, which is not recommended by the manual by Honeywell. Following departure, the flight climbed in a left turn according to the visual procedures for departure from Merida. While in the 180-degree turn, the captain read the after-takeoff checklist and reminded the first officer, a 27-year-old commercial pilot with 2,112 hours total, 602 hours on type, uh, reminded him again that the AHARS is offline. The autopilot is not operative and the first officer needs to fly manually and visually. The aircraft climbed through 10,457 feet MSL and entered into clouds. Now they were fully in instrument meteorological conditions. What part of visually did he not understand? I don't know. (laughs) It's kind of hard (laughs) to fly visually when you're in. My eyeballs are still open. (laughs) So visual. Yeah. Yeah. With visual with the flight deck. With an, with an AR system that is not. Not working. Working. Or not. Yeah. yeah. Not properly aligned. Not aligned. (sighs) Tower instructed the flight to call observation as the aircraft was not on its planned departure route. The captain handled the call. Shortly afterwards, the GPWS sounds terrain, terrain, pull up, pull up. Just when the first officer reporting it reported a heading of 073 degrees. 30 seconds after the first alert, the Jipwiz sounded the long alert. Terrain, terrain, pull up, pull up, pull up, pull up, and two more of those. The captain took control of the aircraft. The first officer recognized they were not heading 073 degrees, but 318 degrees, and were on a wrong course. The first officer also recognized the gravity of the alarm. Another 15 seconds later, the GPWS sounded too low, gear. The first officer again mentioned they were on a the wrong course. Of course, it doesn't say anything about them doing anything. To try uh, and correct their course or, or to pull get away up. from the terrain yeah. or nothing. No. Another six seconds later, the GPWS sounded terrain, terrain, and now continuously calls pull up. The aircraft is being pulled up and turned right, finally. The stick shaker activated. The impact. The aircraft impacted Los Coneos at an altitude of 12,499 feet MSL at 107 knots indicated after 7 minutes and 15 seconds flight time. The aircraft came to rest at an altitude of 12,240 feet. All 43 passengers and three crew perished in the impact. Um, 
So let's see. The the JIAAC analyzed that the passengers were already on board the aircraft when the flight crew entered the cockpit. Due to the resulting pressure, the flight crew did not carry out the corresponding checklist before takeoff, which would have made them aware to wait three minutes for the AHARS to to align. According to the manual, the alignment begins as soon as the battery switch is turned on and takes about three minutes during which the aircraft must remain stationary. According to the flight data recorder, the time between the battery switch coming on, the aircraft starting to move, the time between the battery switch coming on and the aircraft started to move was two hours and uh, two minutes and 42 seconds, which was not enough time for the AHARS to align. Um, So again, the tower says, you know, you cleared a taxi, uh, please expedite because there's a aircraft coming in on final. So more pressure to get airborne quickly. Uh, the captain handed the controls to the first officer, pilot flying, without consideration that they were flying with the AHARS and operative. Subsequently, the, when the aircraft entered the cloud, the captain continued the flight under those conditions. Overconfidence in the crew and lack of identification of potential risks contributed that the captain underestimated the risk of takeoff in this unsafe condition. Now, part of the reason why this kind of sounds weird is that this is the translation from the Spanish to English. Wow. Um this is just, this blows me away. Um, you're trying to rush. But you just you know, can't defend any of that. No. No, it's just stupid. Well, I mean, you know. 18 we, seconds. They, if they, 18 seconds, if they just sat there, I mean, they're never, you're never in such a hurry that you can't wait 18 seconds. What was the matter with these guys? I mean, we've all had that kind of time pressure, but this is extreme. This is like, uh, let's just run into the, I mean, did they even have time to strap in? I'm wondering. Yeah, it doesn't sound like they did anything by any normal checklist or procedure. No. They just kind of were freelancing it here, and that's uh, what bit them in the butt. Yeah, I mean, they were in the terminal for like 40 minutes uh, mm-hmm. doing what? Uh, and then they came out of the airplane just before departure and then suddenly realized, oh, we're late, we're late. <laughs> and then completely uh, – Contrary to everything that you would possibly imagine would be even approaching good airmanship, uh, force the aircraft to into the air with a, you know an attitude and reference system that wasn't aligned and was going to give them false information. I mean, I'm just I have no idea what was going through their heads. I mean, and especially terrible in a location surrounded by high terrain. I think the city's at like five thousand feet to begin with, and then you've got high mountain peaks around it, and obviously not complete you know visual conditions mm-hmm. yeah not that that's any excuse for them not following the original procedure they, anyway, they have a, a a graphic here that i i turned uh, clockwise 90 degrees because the way they had it situated before was you, you see the north is actually on the left side of the photo so i put it at the top but they took off you know on runway uh two four and started the, the left turn but then they continued to turn left and then kept going to the northwest, and that's where all the huge mountains are. And they flew right into the mountains. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then uh, they—I mean—they might well have lived if they obeyed the first of the GPWS warnings, mm-hmm. but it didn't look like they did. And they only hit the ground two hundred and fifty feet short of the peak. So if they just started a, a few seconds earlier, they probably would have got away with it. Okay. Yeah, really. Oh. Very crazy. All right. Well, let's continue with the craziness, shall we? Uh, Bring it on. Item B. This one uh, took part in another part of the world in China. A 
Shanghai Airlines Boeing 737-800, registration B5131, performing flight 9194 from Shenyang to Shanghai, Pudong, China. Landed on Pudong's runway 34 right, but bounced. Touched down a second time at 5.37 degrees nose up. The pitch increased to 10.55 degrees two seconds later, and the tail contacted the runway surface. About another two seconds later, the captain instructed a go-around. The thrust was increased, and the aircraft climbed out to safety. The aircraft landed on runway 34 right without further incident about 12 minutes later. On April 6, 2020, the Chinese CAC reported the first officer occupying the left-hand seat was the pilot flying. Okay, let me say that again. The first officer occupying the left-hand seat was the pilot flying. The captain, occupying the right seat, although not licensed as an instructor, was pilot monitoring. Following the balked landing, the crew engaged the autopilot, and while the autopilot was active, swapped seats, the captain returning to the left-hand seat, the first officer to the right-hand seat, both leaving their seats at the same time. In addition, <laughs> in addition, the, cap- the captain... <laughs> I know, this is crazy. The captain was required to, war- to wear far vision correction, according to his medical, but not did not wear his vision correction. The regulatory agency's investigation believes the first bounce was caused by not retarding the throttle levers to idle, which only occurred following the bounce. The crew lost situational awareness, attempted to land the aircraft instead of a bounce recovery maneuver, which in turn caused the tail strike following the second touchdown. Okay, tail strike, tail strike, but... What is going on with the guys in the wrong seats? Yeah, that's that's hey, quick. Let's uh, let's just switch back, and no one will notice that <laughs> we did anything. Nothing wrong happened. Here. Nothing to see. <laughs> yeah, you know, if if nothing happened, they never would have been caught. But why take that risk? Why do something this stupid? I mean, it's just stupid. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I don't like to use that word, but that is just stupid. <laughs> it's just plain stupid. No, 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 you're absolutely spot on, Dana. Absolutely. And, and it's criminally stupid. Uh, yes. So I'm going, what the hell? I mean, we were so punctilious about uh, having a man at the controls with his lap straps fastened. If you were changing seats uh, and, you know, you were doing the double shuffle where you had both guys were going to change position, uh, you always had one bloke in the seat with his lap strap fastened at all times. And we were absolutely, you know, that rule was never, ever broken. No one even sneaked their belt undone a little early uh, because there's just no point taking the risk. You need to have somebody at the controls all the time properly fastened. And you you were never allowed to sit in a seat you weren't qualified for. No. I mean – Everything's backwards, back to front. And if you've flown a long time as a first officer, moving into the left-hand seat takes a lot of time. Why well, I would say a lot of time. It takes time to orientate yourself to the fact that you're using different hands for different jobs now. Uh, and all those m- motor functions that you have ingrained, you now have to reverse. Uh, and it's easy when you're watching where your hands are going, but a lot of the time you can't do that in an airplane. You're looking out the window or looking at the instruments or whatever, and you've got to do it by muscle memory. Uh, so what on earth the guy thought he was doing, putting his first arse in the captain's Yeah, you know, no Nick, and in, in, in being that I'm fairly of the crew here, the most recent to do such a 
transition from the right seat to the left seat on an aircraft that I'm very familiar with. Uh, that was uh, that was a bit of a challenge to get used to that because it it, it probably took me a good 150 hours um, really getting that motor m- muscle memory down with my left hand and using my right hand for throttles because I was doing the exact opposite forever. So I mean, initially I was you know comfortable enough to go out and fly the airplane as a captain. You know, transitioning, you know, I was comfortable enough, but it still took me some time to really not have to sit there and think about things. So just to go ahead and in mid-flight and decide, okay, you know, I think I'll go ahead and try to fly in the captain's seat uh, with, you know, 150 people in the back of my airplane, that's, that's just absurd. It's ridiculous. It's, just, it's careless. It's reckless. And don't ever do it. Period. Hey, man, you want to do something fun? Yeah, what? Sure. <laughs> Let's swap <laughs> seats. <laughs> yeah. Let's drive up to 45,000 feet, put the flaps out, uh, you know, and, and other stupid things that people have done. And you go, oh, come on, guys. I can't tell you how many times, you know, I've, I've you know, you're, you, sometimes you get bored in flight and you start looking around things. I wonder what happened if I, and they go, oh, I'm not going to do it. I'm not even completely nope. going, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. Probably nothing, but you never know. Just leave it alone. You, you want, you want, you want to see somebody jump out of their skin. If, if they dare even try to fall asleep. Go up and reach up and hit the stall warning check. You know, yeah, you mm-hmm. can do stall. Yeah, you want to see somebody jump? See, even then, it's like I'd be afraid to hit the stall warning thing, thinking that that would do something to, to the airplane yeah, and make it. it actually go out of control. Yeah. Oh, you didn't like right that Air Canada first officer who uh, came out of a bit of a, a, a sleep in his seat, saw uh-huh. Venus, the planet, ahead of him, Thought it was an airplane they were about to collide with, and before he was properly awake, grabbed the side stick and plunged the aircraft down, and half the passengers hit the ceiling. And I'm going, oh, for heaven's sake, yeah. dear idea. That's smart. Yeah, no. that's smart. You know, just if, if it's not a written procedure, if you're not authorized to do it, don't do it. It's yeah, there's simple. probably a good reason. You may yeah. not have worked it out yet, but <laughs> don't. Just don't. Just don't do it. Tim Needham yeah. in the um, in the chat room says, "Nervous flyers, look away now." Well, I have news for you, Tim. <laughs> Nervous flyers, you should not be watching this show. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly right. Yeah, and, and while we're at it, uh, it Easter's coming up, folks, in the UK where we're space staying, supposed to be staying at home. So stay at home, please. Yes, yes, Steph. Oh, no, I was just going to say it's even more amazing to me that people would do things like this in a work environment, you know, like it would never occur to me to deviate from any sort of procedures in a work or professional environment. That'd be like you. Like, I mean, you know, instead of doing instead of doing it the way that I've been trained to do, I'm going to try this. We're just going to try something totally different and different. see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, let's come in from your side instead. Let's you know, <laughs> right. let's not go through your back. Let's go through your side. Oh, how about the front? Pretty, pretty sure we're going to miss your kidneys with this approach. It'll be okay. <laughs> It'll be okay. You'll we'll be all right. You'll be all right. Yeah. It, it, no big deal. Yeah. Oh man. Okay. Enough. Enough craziness with uh, accidents on this episode, but we do need to talk a little bit. (laughs) We do need to talk a little bit about uh, the um, pandemic that's happening around us and how that's affecting our industry. Uh, So don't mean to bring it down a little bit, but uh, let's just quickly knock this out. Um, First uh, item in the coronavirus um, (laughs) news item is that uh, Boeing has indefinitely extended the, uh, their factory uh, shutdown 
And here's what it means for 30,000 workers. And I think this is the uh, factory over there in Washington state. I'm not sure if, I don't think, has the factory shut down in Charleston, South Carolina? I'm not sure about that. Mm, I actually don't know. I haven't seen any news related yeah. to that. Um, yeah, you would, find you, out. Would, you would know because uh, you're a South Car- Carolinian, right? Yeah, but all of my news comes from Charlotte, which is in North uh, Carolina. So yeah. we don't always get all of that. Oh, yeah. South Carolina. There's yeah. people. They, they don't care about us just over the border. It's <laughs> like we don't exist. Anyway, 30,000 Boeing employees on Wednesday must start taking vacation or sick time or apply for unemployment after the region's largest private employer decided on Sunday to keep its Puget Sound plants closed indefinitely. Puget. Okay. Greg Greg Hewson um, chimed in. He said uh, Ch- uh, Charleston is shut down. Oh, it is as well. Okay. Uh, the workers have been paid during the initial two-week work stoppage that began March 25th when Boeing closed its local factories to grapple with the spread of COVID-19, the disease caused by the novel coronavirus. The company told employees Sunday in an email it's extending the temporary suspension of operations at all Puget Sound area and Moses Lake sites until further notice. Boeing has roughly 70,000 employees in the state. The decision affects about 30,000 of them, mostly production workers. Other employees who can work from home will continue to do so, and volunteer employees will continue to maintain the essential services at the plants. Um, The company is paying the employees their regular salaries only through Tuesday, the two-week mark of the shutdown, uh, said Boeing spokesman Bernard Choi. From then on, employees not working can use paid time off, either vacation or sick leave. And I guess they can also apply for unemployment. And uh, let's see, uh, Boeing has $15 billion in cash on hand. That's a lot of cash. (laughs) Uh, But it will need more given the breathtaking scale of the airline downturn. On Friday, a big airplane lessor, uh, Avalon, Canceled orders for 75 737 Maxes, worth about $3.8 billion. Because of the delay in delivering the Max, many customers will be able to cancel orders for that plane with no penalties. So they think that this is just the tip of the iceberg. Many other orders for that airplane are probably being canceled as we speak. Bad news for Boeing. And so, I mean, they were having a bad time before this uh, coronavirus thing. And, uh, yeah, it's crazy. Um, up in Canada, Air Transat has temporarily suspended their operation. Um, in total, more than 40 aircraft will be grounded, spread out between Quebec, Montreal, and Mirabel, and Ontario, Toronto, and British Columbia, Vancouver. This break, which we hope to put behind us soon, will enable us to come back stronger than ever. Resilience and tenacity are part of Transat's DNA. And they will allow us to get through the crisis, according to a spokesperson. Uh, Let's see. Although the situation is changing constantly, we remain confident that Transat's star will shine again. Turkish airlines won't fly again until late April. Um, So, again, due to the uh, COVID-19, many airlines have halted here in uh, the United States uh, service to New York City amid escalating coronavirus fears. American plans to operate just 13 flights a day out of JFK and LaGuardia and Newark um, from this week until May 6th, uh, which is a 95% uh, downturn of flights operated. Uh, United 
said it would reduce daily flights at Newark and LaGuardia from 157 to just 17. Delta Airlines is running just 15 daily departures from LaGuardia as the carrier slashes service there by more than 90% in April. Uh, 80%, uh, let's see, Delta flights have also been reduced more than 80% from the planned domestic schedule at JFK and about 80% at Newark this month. Uh, Let's see, moving down, Budget Airlines Spirit, or Airline Spirit, has suspended flights through at least May 4th at LaGuardia in Newark, along with the airport serving Hartford, Connecticut, and upstate Niagara Falls and Plattsburgh. JetBlue will cut daily flights to and from local airports by as much as 80%. Um, So, um, major cutbacks from airlines here in the U.S. operating um, out of uh, the New York City area, which right now is still kind of the epicenter for the uh, coronavirus. I don't know if anybody has taken over that that, area. that crown yet at this point? Um, mm, not yet, I don't think. Not yet. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then um, a smaller carrier, uh, Raven Air, R-A-V-N Air, announced that due to the COVID-19 pandemic and the unprecedented loss of 90% of passenger revenue at all three of its airlines, which are uh, Raven Air, Alaska, no, Raven Air, Alaska, Penn Air, and Raven Air Connect, it must for the time being park all 72 of its aircraft, stop all our operations, temporarily laying off all remaining staff until the company is in a position to cover the costs of rehiring, resuming flights, and operating to the many communities it serves throughout the state of Alaska. Okay, so lots of uh, bad news. Uh, and of course, that's just a, the tip of the iceberg. Many um, airlines all across the world have uh, shut down or severely reduced their flying, including Acme. Um, And uh, we're just kind of waiting for this thing to, you know, run its course and hopefully things will start improving sooner rather than later. And then hopefully we can recover from this economic disaster. Uh, There are some good news uh, though. Good news articles. Um, Here's one. Uh, you may have seen this on your local news or uh, national news. A 16-year-old pilot flies medical supplies to rural hospitals. Um, his name is uh, TJ Kim. Uh, he can't play lacrosse because COVID-19 took that sport away. But at age 16, he can't drive alone. But he can fly. And he's turned his flying lessons into missions of mercy, bringing desperately needed supplies to rural hospitals in need. Each week... He carries gloves, masks, gowns, and other equipment to small hospitals. When he made his first delivery on March 27 to a 25-bed hospital in Luray, he was taken aback by the reception. They kind of conveyed to me that they were really forgotten about. Everyone was wanting to send donations to big city hospitals, he said. Every hospital is hurting for supplies, but it's the rural hospitals that really uh, feel forgotten. So that's kind of cool. That uh, Let's see, he's a sophomore Uh, at Landon School in Bethesda, Maryland, and brainstormed with his family in McLean, Virginia, about ways to keep active and to serve the community while he had the time. They settled on Operation SOS, Supplies Over Skies. The most recent flight carried 3,000 gloves, 1,000 head covers, 500 shoe covers, 50 non-surgical masks, and 20 pairs of protective eyewear and 10 concentrated bottles of hand sanitizer to Winchester to help supply a hospital in nearby Woodstock. That's cool. 
Yeah, great news. Glad to have that as the uh, ending to all that other not so great news. Right. I mean, there's so much we could spend three hours just talking about all the bad news uh, regarding this whole pandemic and its effect. Is it me? Am I the only one that's really tired of hearing nothing but the news and the bad news that they keep on conveying on the news? Uh, So you want to know what? I haven't turned the news on. It's probably I, good I, I for wanna, probably good for your um you know your your psyche psyche yeah absolutely I'm so tired of hearing about it and you know as I said from the get go about you know social media and, and media driving this thing and and they they are it's just you want to know what I want to hear the good news stories I want to hear uh you know the people that are surviving and reuniting and I want to hear about you know uh private pilots taking the airplane to help out people that are in need or people that go in the extra mile. That's, that's where humanity strives in, in usually excels is helping one another. Mm-hmm. And that's what I want to hear. I don't want to hear all this negativity. All right. Yeah, I agree. I think everybody agrees. So, well, let's just keep it on the, uh, on the up and up and positive and all that jazz and start talking about what's been happening with everybody here on the crew and uh, let's see let's start in seniority order dr steph how have mm. you been i'm good um not a whole lot going on here this week um work has been slow still working so i still have some semblance of a normal schedule um Still doing the occasional procedure up in our, uh, our one of our satellite offices, which is about the farthest location that we have from my house. But given that there's very little traffic now, it's really not taking me very much time at all to, to get there when I have to go up there. Um, doing a lot of video visits and telephone visits. And I think people are starting to get a little bit more comfortable with that technology. Although some hiccups with uh, trying to do the uh, video visits we had planned for today, they kind of all turned into to telephone visits. Um and that's about it for right now. I haven't done any more flying or anything since we last talked, um, but got a couple of days off this weekend. Uh, tomorrow's a holiday for us being Good Friday, so not actually doing any work tomorrow. And then back to work on, on Monday. But we'll see how the, uh, you know, it's gorgeous this whole week. Nice weather, like 80 degrees, sunny. Had a couple of thunderstorms yesterday evening and this morning, um, but it looks like it's going to be cooler and perhaps a little bit rainier and grayer this weekend. So it might be a good weekend to just keep getting some stuff done around the house. We'll see. And to go out and run in the rain, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> okay. That hasn't stopped. No, no. All right. Well, good yeah. to hear. Uh, short and sweet update. So, yeah. Well, we like that. We can knock out more feedback if we keep this uh, short and Grace. sweet. Um, Nick, how are you? Are you still uh, suffering from the, Whatever it is you've been suffering with the last what four weeks now? Uh, yeah, and I'm still um, hacking away. Sadly, uh, I thought midweek that uh, a little earlier in the week that I was on the up and up, but uh, I've sort of plateaued and I'm still coughing my guts up uh, at intervals. But uh, I'm not feeling any other uh, ill effects, so uh, I'm obviously not going to worry the um, the docs, uh, and you know because I, I'm still breathing fine and everything else is good. So I'm just waiting for this cough to go, and it's a damn persistent thing. But apart from that, everything's uh, fine and beautiful in my small world. Because the United Kingdom is pretty much, unless you're one of the uh, essential services uh, uh, required to go out and do your duty. 
the United Kingdom's pretty much on lockdown and will be for at least another three weeks. Uh, that's the news uh, we recently heard. Um, so uh, it's, you know, most of us are being good. Uh, there are a few who are not. Uh, and, of course, they're the ones that are in the headlines as they go out into parks and uh, go to the beaches and things. So uh, the police are going to have to probably uh, be, a mo- be out and about a lot more and try and keep control of uh, uh, those people who don't understand that they – it doesn't matter whether they put in themselves at risk or not, but – much more importantly, they're moving this disease on to people who can't cope with it. And so while they are fit and young enough and they may well survive a, an attack, uh, the things they do and the things they touch and the virus they spread around may well reach people who aren't in that position. And that's who we're trying to protect, the more vulnerable in our society. So um, I know uh, the, everyone's saying it. I will just say it. One more time, please stay at home this Easter weekend, even though it's going to be a gorgeous weekend here and the sun's going to bounce, it's going to be warm and a lot of these people may not have gardens to go into where they can get a breath of fresh air or parks nearby where they're allowed to go. So I do quite understand, but, uh, you know, it's it's a few weeks. It's a few weeks of what might be a lovely year uh, later on if we just bide our time and uh, let it pass and then uh, you know the restrictions will ease and we go out and celebrate and just slap ourselves on the back and say how clever we were (laughs) we Um, made it yes we made it through so that's great um uh yeah so that that's me in a nutshell uh i'm working away on plain tales and doing a few odds and sods um to try and keep myself busy but there's not a lot to do quite honestly uh jilly keeps asking me to help with the housekeeping I'll, i'm supposed oh, to be dusting well you you guys have to keep you know giving me things to do. <laughs> they, they were, those folks are counted as uh if the commercial folks anyway are counted as essential services still here so i had the uh house cleaners in today so oh, okay. to, all right okay yeah. well we're, we're not Although they, they were to. very good they called ahead made sure no one was sick confirmed they weren't sick with anything masks gloves and they're doing all the cleaning down of surfaces so I, that was a good okay. thing. I, I hope that the yard service people that i have um not are, essential here they're not i hope they are here because had my, to get the lawn, my lawn, lawn out the other day. really looking weeks. what's going on oh <laughs> i need to get to the hairdresser but uh, not for another three weeks so I'm going to look like a big white bush with a little baseball cap stuck I'm, I'm on sorry, the top I was, soon. I was yeah. talking about the garden. Um, uh, well, I was too. Yeah. Oh, Got to keep okay. your garden trimmed. Hey, I heard on another podcast, I don't know if this is true in all states here in the U.S., but um, podcasters are considered essential services or essential jobs. Of course. So you can go out there you know, as much as you want and go, hey, I'm a podcaster. Leave me alone. Do we have to take our official ID for that? Yes, make sure you have your podcaster ID with you. (laughs) I guess I need to make some up. Exactly. Although I think we're going to hear from someone later on in the show if we get time. To, uh, that might suggest that uh, podcast listening is uh, on a downward trend in mm. this, which yeah, surprises sh- me because I thought you'd have more time on your hands. But apparently yeah. most of our listeners do it in the car when well, they've got it, nothing better to do. Yeah. I think it has more to do with, you know, just the – so I think we're, we've talked about this before and uh, we're fortunate to do this and not – 
need sponsors and we would do it just because we enjoy doing it. We're not Mm -hmm. on the commercial side of things, but for those folks who it's their job to produce content and, and make shows, those sponsors are the ones that are having trouble uh, earning a living right now as well. So they're not Mm -hmm. turning that money into sponsorship. I I I would think that mostly because people are, are, are fairly occupied at the home front, either doing projects at the house or dealing with the family, you know, not having a whole lot of time to sit sit around on their own to listen to podcasts or, or listen to, to radio uh, for that, for, you know, that you would normally do when you're in the vehicle or at work, you know, trying to do work, but have something in the background, like my, you know, like my wife does all the time. She always has some type of radio going on in the background. So I think a lot of that's fallen off. And plus, you know, people, People just uh, are, are probably, most part, pretty down right now. Yeah. That's why I need to stay positive. That's why I'm wearing this funny getup. Yeah. Oh, I thought that was just your normal outfit. No, no, no. Yeah. It's, it's just actually. Thursday. So, you know, time to throw on the sombrero and the <laughs> just party glasses. Dan, Dan is Thursday outfit. I mean, we're so <laughs> yeah, used to seeing not? that. <laughs> well, speaking of Dana, how have you been, sir? What have you been up to? I'm, I'm doing great. Uh, other than... Um, being continue to take be taken off my trips um i would love to get out there and do a little flying even though i know it is dangerous uh still uh necessary people need to get into necessary positions for example uh you know doctors and nurses and medical staff and supplies and all that stuff still need people uh flying airplanes so they can get to the location they need to go so i wouldn't mind helping out with that a little bit other than that i've just been home finishing up my uh, renovation that I started prior to this whole downturn. So I really wish I hadn't started that because that was a lot of um, needed capital that went out the window, so to speak. But the the, the massive bathroom remod is uh, almost complete, just waiting on a couple things, uh, some uh, shower glass. Uh, the doors have to be installed and mirror, and uh, the cabinet got to come by, and we're going to be pretty much done. So I've been very, very busy with that for the last seven better part of seven weeks so it's yesterday kind of my last day really working on it and today i've kind of been lounging around whether it's been beautiful here in atlanta as uh jeff and i know steph mentioned it but it's been beautiful here as well um and that's pretty much it pretty pretty short and sweet just hoping i get to go fly yeah i don't know about you dana but all the trips that i had scheduled for this month um have been uh 23k that's a um a a section of our working agreement, basically. And what that means is the trips are not operating and we're kind of on the hook for recovery flying if that comes about. And uh, the first one that I had that was in that status was this past week and I didn't get called up to uh, go fly. I did fly last weekend, however. Um, yeah, I heard about that. I flew, um, let's say, deadheaded on Friday night up to Columbus, Ohio. And then I was there all day on Saturday and then flew back, operated the flight in the morning of Sunday um, back to Atlanta. And that's the only flying I've done in the last couple of weeks. So Yeah, it's it's crazy. I mean, all of my trips are the same scenario except for my last one of the month. I was hoping I was going to go on this one upcoming because, you know, I, have, I do have a drinking problem. And that is uh, the trip was going to be in Toronto. For an overnight, so I was going to be able to go into Toronto's uh, duty free and get my favorite uh, um, Crown Royal Limited, which I can only get in duty free in Toronto. But that has been now since taken from me. So, yeah, I'm down to one trip left that they have not taken off my schedule. 
Um, well, so, have you checked recently? <laughs> yeah, uh, okay. it's still there. Okay, because I, mean, I, I, I check just it daily. Just yesterday, I noticed that every single one of my flights um, or trips for this month have been canceled. So, yeah, I still have my the, the one trip that I would really like to get rid of. It's oh, still on there. That's the five day trip that Ooh. is. Yeah, it's ugly, and I don't want to fly it at all because it's a. What is it here? I'm looking it up right now. Um, Memphis, Daytona, I don't mind. Daytona can go illegally walk on the beach, and then I get 30 hours in Providence. I have a funny feeling, you know, because it so shows me going Memphis to Atlanta, Atlanta to Austin, Austin. Well, then Austin is just Austin. Then next thing you know, I'm, I'm flying Pittsburgh back to Atlanta. So, you know, unless I'm yeah. teleporting somehow. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that trip is going to fly. Austin and, and Pittsburgh. Uh, yeah, that might not, uh, that might not yeah. work out so well. They're going to get rid know, of that one eventually, I think. I, I think so. We'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah. But, you know, the moral of the story is I do, believe it or not, uh, <laughs> you know, it's nice to have some time off. But mm-hmm. truth be told, I love what I do for a living, and I really miss flying. So, and I'm, I, have, I really hope I haven't flown my last trip as a captain. I don't think you have. So we'll see. Nah. All right. Um, Mia, yeah, I just mentioned that I did that um, uh, extra flying last over the, over the, over the weekend. And then pretty much since then I've been um, hanging out here in the bunker. I've been self isolating here uh, because, you know, just in case I was exposed, um, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm sitting right next to my co-pilot for hours at a time in a very enclosed space. And, He's hoping that I'm uh, COVID nineteen free, and I'm hoping he is as well. Uh, we um, the transportation for Sunday morning uh, didn't happen. I think you've experienced the same thing, Dana. And so we um, Ubered from the downtown hotel to the airport in a very very small one of those Kia Souls, or whatever the really tiny little boxy cars. And mm-hmm. this guy's telling us about the fact that he's been really super busy pick, carrying all kinds of people and we're kind of looking at each other like oh uh, no what were we what were we thinking that uh, yeah, yeah like who knows what kind of covid-19 sanitizing your yes. tiny car in between each trip oh yeah food. i didn't ask him that i have a feeling not so um just as a precaution i came home and i didn't even walk through the reg- regular part of our house i actually got accessed the uh, basement from the outside so that I wouldn't have any contact with my family just in case I don't want to infect them in case I'm carrying something that I uh, don't need to be. So that was, uh, came, came home last Sunday. So it's Thursday. So it's been about four days and, uh, that's, that's pretty much it for me. Um, do want to mention that we have made the decision that our patrons at uh, patreon.com not be charged anything for all of the uh, the shows that we put out for the uh, for for the time being um, until things start improving with this whole pande- pandemic and the economy starts uh, going upwards because i know a lot of you um, have reduced or canceled your pledges for the show and i know that a lot of people were probably thinking that you know that they might do the same and i i didn't want people to have to struggle with that decision so we decided that uh, we just wouldn't um charge anything and so if you are a patron um you're not going to be charged a thing until things start 
improving. And in fact, if you're not a patron of the show, uh, Patreon, um, you can go over there and see what you know the the patrons have been experiencing as far as uh, access to our crew logs. And uh, the two crew logs before all of this, I went ahead and opened up for the public. Uh, one was uh, uh, one that uh, Nick had done and the uh, the sailing adventure that uh, Steph tells us about that she kind of teased us about a couple of episodes ago. She did a special uh, crew log about that. So that's available whether you're a patron or not. Um, and then one that was just released, uh, I believe it was yesterday, right? Uh, Nick, you did another one, an incident that happened about 59 years ago, um, a, a shoot down of a B-52 by... Yeah, I was just looking at uh, for possible plane tail subjects and found this, and I, I thought it was a great story. Uh, wait, you guys shot one of your own bombers down. I thought I... I is a bit of Schadenfreude there. <laughs> yeah. Well, you thought, know, Ray, we're not the only ones that could do that shit. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> I thought that was good, but it was just too short to make into a full twenty mm-hmm. eighteen minute twenty minute plane tour. So I thought, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll uh, I'll knock it out as a little crew log. So I, I really enjoyed that story. Uh, I sad that, uh, of course, uh, unlike on our incident, uh, uh, a few um, brave American uh, servicemen died. But uh, still, even so, it's a fascinating story. Well, a lot of people out there that don't like the B-52. So this one just <laughs> shot one down. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Anyway. So anyway, check it out. Um, Patreon.com slash Airline Pilot Guy. And you don't have to sign up. Just kind of see what's going on over there and um, – you know, it's free of charge. So uh, just another reminder, we do have uh, merchandise if you want to. Uh, oh, and the other thing I want to mention is the fact that many of the people that had been given giving regular contributions via uh, Patreon decided to use the uh, APG Classic method and contribute nice, generous contributions there because they are not, at least not yet, affected by the uh, economic downturn regarding this pandemic. So thank you very much to all of you who, uh, you didn't need to do that. You just, you know, spend the money elsewhere. Absolutely. Very kind. Yeah. We're going to talk about those folks very, very shortly here. Um, I I did forget to mention one thing. Yeah, go ahead. My pontoon boat. Oh, speaking about economic downturn. Mm -hmm. Oh, is it sunk again? No. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) anybody that's interested in buying a pontoon, reach out to me, Dana at airline pilot guy. (laughs) <laughs> there we go. I'm actually finally going to get it listed. They finally fi- fix it, and oh. hopefully, uh, I, I know it's the worst possible time ever to try to sell anything like that. But we'll uh, we'll keep our fingers. What crossed. about the APG parties uh, this summer on the boat? Come on, Doctor Seth offered her oh, services. That's true. That's true. But mm-hmm. she doesn't. Have I'm a no longer needed. Boat. I think she's just got a couple there of blow up swans, and uh, yeah, an old plank or two. We'll have well, to build our own raft or something. Yeah. I, I've I've got the boat. Don't don't worry if you want to come party. We have the pontoon boat is uh, has been upgraded. You know that. All right. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I was I was talking about Steph's lake. Yeah. Yes. And we were just giving you a bad time, Dan. I know. All right. Uh, very good. So yeah, ser- I guess you're serious about that, right? If you want to buy a tri tri tune uh, triple yep. pontoon boat thing. Uh, Dana at airlinepilotguy.com. Very, Very luxurious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had a good yeah, time. We definitely it. have a good party there. Yeah, yeah, it's it's awesome. I'm I'm going to miss it to be honest. I'm oh. actually deciding which one I want to put up for sale. I may put the cruiser up for sale. All right. 
Yeah. Well, let us know. Keep us surprised. And uh, let's go ahead and do a quick coffee fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thing. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right. Coffee fund your way to support the show financially. But right now, don't worry about it. Just take a break. But... A lot of people don't listen to me when I tell them that. And let me read a list of folks who have made contributions via the Coffee Fund Classic Method. Uh, Brian Hanacek. How'd I do there, Brian? I think I got it. Stephen Wisniewski. Wisniewski. I always mess up his name. William Driver. Michael Kwok. Kieran O'Leary. Robert Simmons from St. Benedict School in the UK. And Cindy Filco. Thank you, all of you. Again, you really didn't need to. We're okay. Um, so they, uh, use the coffee fund classic method to, uh, send us some contributions. And actually we have a new executive producer at Patreon, uh, Paul Marie, uh, he just became a, uh, $5, uh, per episode patron. So thank you, sir. Um, enjoy not being charged for the time being. Again, if you want to join the uh, folks at Patreon, become a patron of the show, or just give a contribution via the classic method, please head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. Captain, incoming message. All right. Let's look at the feedback folder and see what is up first. Looks like a question from Dan. He says, uh, I can't even tell you how stoked I am to have Miami Rick back. To anyone who isn't familiar with him, get ready. (laughs) He thought it was a great show, and it was, but this guy kicks it up another notch or two. Another big fan of Miami Rick out there from Mm -hmm. Dan. Anyway, I have a question for Dr. Steph. I'm looking forward to an aviation career, and I'd like to fly the heavy metal. My problem is that I just can't hold my bladder for that long. Right now, I work in an office where I can use the facility as often as I need to, so that's nice. But I think I'd get shot by the cabin crew for making them block off the aisle like four times for a four-hour flight. And he says, that's an exaggeration, but not by much. So I can use the bathroom. So my question is, how do I get a bigger bladder? Anyone else who wants to chime in, please do so. Talons, Dan. Hey, Dan. Great question. Um, Yeah. So let's say this first. Um, You know, it's not a terribly uncommon thing to have kind of an overactive bladder or have to go to the bathroom frequently. And that can be due to simple things like consuming a lot of fluids during the day. Some people just drink a lot of beverages. Um, There's certain fluids that can make you feel like you have to go to the bathroom more often, diuretics, um, things like caffeine, alcoholic beverages, although if you're flying the heavy metal, hopefully you're not drinking those alcoholic beverages before you go fly. Um, But I should put my little medical disclaimer in here first before we get into the things that you can try on your own. Um, If you do have an overactive bladder, you need to go to the bathroom more frequently. 
especially if it's getting worse over time, that could be a sign of something more serious going on. Um, it can be a sign of diabetes uh, developing, urinary tract infections, other structural problems, tumors, stones, prostate problems in men. Um, so if it's if this sounds like you, if you're having trouble where it's getting worse over time, please go get it checked out by your doctor first. Don't just launch into the things that I'm telling you to do here. Um, so assuming that none of those things apply to you, more serious things have been ruled out. Uh, there's a couple of things that you can do. Um, it's not a bad idea first to kind of keep track a little bit more closely. So you may want to uh, just put together a simple diary and for a couple of days, maybe up to a week, just keep track of everything you do related to going to the bathroom. But that also includes making sure that you um, keep track of what you're having to drink. So how often are you, are you consuming fluids, the volume of what you're consuming? Um, that might give you a good idea of, um, uh, part of the problems that you might be having with this. But then you also need to keep track of how often you are going to the bathroom, but also, and this is important, how often you feel the urge to have to empty your bladder. So it might not just be that you're going to the bathroom frequently, it might be that you feel like you have to go to the bathroom more frequently. So keep track of that, and then you'll have a good idea of where you're starting from. And you can take a look at that information and say, okay, on the average day, I go to the bathroom this often, this many times. Um, Healthy individuals tend to go to the bathroom um, to empty their bladder anywhere between four and 10 times a day. So that's kind of the normal range. Um, you might find that you fit in that normal range. Might not be anything to worry about. Um, but once you know all of that, then you can kind of go, okay, well, here's how often I'd like to go to the bathroom or I'd like to you know, be able to extend the interval to this period of time. Um, so the first thing you're going to do once you have that information is make sure that you go to the bathroom and empty your bladder completely first thing in the morning. And then you can start your timer from there. So if you if you want to go an hour, two hours, that's your time frame. So when that time comes up, you actually want to try and go to the bathroom then. So don't just, you know, if two hours comes up and you go, oh, I don't really have to go to the bathroom, go to the bathroom anyway. So you can keep that consistent um, um, time frame going, those intervals. Um, and once you're able to do that, you know, for a couple of days or a week or so, pretty comfortably and you're not having any trouble meeting those intervals, then you can increase it gradually. So maybe the next week you do 15 minute longer intervals until you get to the point where you can do longer and longer and that helps train your bladder a little bit. Uh, there's other things you can do to try and train your bladder. You can work on pelvic floor strengthening exercises. Those are commonly known as Kegel exercises. Um, lots of people think that applies only to women, but that's not true. Uh, men can do pelvic floor exercises as well. Um, it's really important because those are your muscles that help support bladder function. So to, you know, how, how do you know how to do Kegel exercises? So you have to identify those muscles. And basically to find the right muscles, you want to imagine that you're going to uh, stop urination kind of midstream. So if you're going to the bathroom, you'll make that stop. So if you can contract those muscles, <laughs> Jeff is practicing right now. <laughs> um, or you can alternatively, if that seems kind of difficult for you to figure out, um, it's the same muscles that would prevent you from passing gas. So helpful tips there. Um, I need to, to figure that out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully most people can figure out one of those two things to do. So then once you've identified those muscles, then you want to just exercise it like you would exercise other, other muscles. You're going to do sets or repetitions of contracting those muscles at, for periods of time, and then try and do it uh, more frequently and for longer periods of time. So um, you can try it for three seconds to start. Some people find it easier to do if you're lying flat on your, like lying on your back. Um, but after a while, you should be able to do them sitting, standing, or even while walking around. So kind of nice. You can train these muscles pretty much when you're doing any type of activity. Um, sometimes it's, it's a good idea to do it um, 
more on a schedule. So if you're brushing your teeth or you know doing other chores, you can can do them then as well. Ultimately, try to aim for maybe three sets of 10, 10 repetitions a day to help train those muscles. So those are things you can do just to work on, you know, improving your your time between trips to the bathroom for that Delta P. And those Kegel exercises can you know, be helpful for many other things as well. This say. is true. This is true. Dan's question was about going yes. to the bathroom. Yes, it was. So. Yes. And, and so I should probably play this one. Uh Family show, ladies and gentlemen. Family show. I must admit, I always found that when I was in the seat, uh, in a sitting position, I rarely had uh, a lot of need to go to the loo. As soon as I stood up, different matter. So, you know, I could go quite, you know, a long time sitting in the seat. But if I, when I needed to change seats or get up and stretch my legs a minute, and then I was inevitably having to go to the loo. So I think if you're probably in the seat for a, two or three hour flight, that's probably a good thing. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's, so it's different for everyone. I find that when I'm, my mind is preoccupied by what I'm doing. So especially when I'm at work, even though I am up and moving around a whole lot at work, um, I'm just preoccupied and I don't think to go use the bathroom, but then again, I'm probably not drinking a whole lot during the day either, which is also not great. So um, keep yourself hydrated. There's no reason not to, not to drink, not to stay hydrated. Um, and I know Dana replied to you as well. I don't know if you want to read your, reply there, Dana? I don't, yeah, I can just summarize it up. Sure. And that is, that, you know, there's a few, few reasons why uh, I try not to, or, or end up not drinking a whole lot of water. And one of the reasons is, you know, post September 11th, uh, even though you're allowed to leave the flight deck, it's not encouraged because, you know, it's, it's a layer of security. So on the shorter flights, you know, for us, uh, Jeff and I, uh, you know, under two hours, generally speaking, um, I always just do what's called a PDP. It's called a, an emergency uh, pre-departure P. It's a procedure we have to have to do. Uh, so generally speaking, that will, will get cover me. Also, you know, you got to realize that the humidity in, a, in an aircraft cabin isn't very high. Uh, it's actually very low. So unless you're drinking a lot of water, you tend to become naturally dehydrated uh, when you're flying as a pilot because you know you're you're having the the liquid quite literally taken out of you um so uh you know there, there are days you know there's uh, big bottles of uh, what 1.5 liter bottles of water i'll drink quite literally drink that now if i pound it all at once uh you know then obviously i'm gonna have to go to the bathroom and i generally try to uh manage my water intake throughout the day just so that i i can you know work around it and just like nick said um, you know, and working around the time when I would, you know, not just around it, but time that I have available when I'm going to go to the bathroom, for example. So, you know, when I'm on descent into a, a, a station, then I'll go ahead and, and, you know, start drinking some water to make sure I'm, you know, get myself really fully hydra- hydrated. Um, but like Nick said, you know, as I'm sit in, sitting in the seat normally, uh, unless I get up, I, I generally can go quite a long time without having to use the restroom. Uh, being that said, as soon as I stand up, watch out because I'm making a break for that first class lavatory. <laughs> move out of the way. Move out of the way. It's 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 uh, uh, it's time to go. So, but yeah, I, I, Dan, you know, you, you think you think that you have to worry about it, but in reality, and most of the people that I fly with, and even to a, a, a larger extent, which I'm not going to generalize, but generally, women tend to go use the restroom a little more often than men. Uh, not all, not all, every woman, but I'm just saying in general, even the ladies I've flown with, 
uh, I've actually have never seen one leave the flight deck. So um, you go use the restroom. So, uh, yeah, that's my take on that. Yeah, I find the ones that uh, end up having to go more often are the ones that are drinking a lot of water because they've been, you know, that's been drilled into their heads. It's a dry environment. You need to drink as much as you can. Um, and I hardly ever drink. Um, I mean, I drink a little bit of water, but I just, uh, I, I just let my body tell me when it's time to drink when I get thirsty. And yeah, and most people who are healthy can can do that. You don't need to consume water beyond the point of um, not feeling thirsty. Right. I noticed that if I've, I've done exercise, I've gone out for a long walk or a run back when I used to run and I, I show up into the cockpit, um, you know, and I'm just thirsty. I can't get enough water. And then that's my body telling me you're dehydrated. You need to drink. But as I said, um, not as active as I used to be. And so I just don't need to drink as much water as I used to. And then of course, as you get to be older, I noticed that, uh, the other, um, group of people that tend to, uh, use the bathroom more often than others are the ones that are getting to be in their mid to late fifties and sixties. And that's uh, usually related as, uh, Steph mentioned to, uh, prostate, uh, issues. Join us next week for bladder and urinary issues on medical slash aviation. <laughs> A, <Yeah>. new podcast. <laughs> A new podcast. A new podcast. Your bladder and you. Exactly. Oh no, we want to talk about excreta next week. Oh yeah. <laughs> Eh, pass. We'll stick with the aviation. I mean, we do that every week, aren't we? But uh, <laughs> have a special edition next week. Yeah. All right. Well, hopefully that helped, Dan. And uh, yeah, as you know, just kind of monitoring what you're drinking and then making sure you do that PDP right before you close the cockpit door for your flight. And then if you're flying the kind of trip segments that, uh, that uh, Dana and I fly, you should be okay. And don't drink a ton of coffee. Yeah, that's the other thing. Coffee. The guys that drink, like, you know, they they order one of those venti, you know, <laughs> coffees, like a thermos full of coffee. And I'm thinking, uh, this is not going to be good. <laughs> yeah. But, it's it's better than them showing up with a, a, a thermos full of baked beans. Yes, that is true. <laughs> God, that doesn't happen too weird often. Weird pilots working for you. <laughs> I mean, that's like one step away from like microwaving some salmon or something in oh. the cockpit, right? Yeah, you mind if I open up this can of tuna? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I do. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, item two in the feedback. We have some feedback from Ahmad uh, in Nigeria. He says, hello, Captain Jeff. Please find attach my latest feedback. He said, I hope it's not too long or heavy. I did a little intro theme like the unique ones you did for Dr. Staff, Miami Rec, Captain Dana, and Captain Nick. Please send my warmest regards to everyone on the show. Thanks, Ahmad. So here we go. Uh, our feedback from Ahmad. Delta Hotel, 
from Abuja, Nigeria, sending in some voice feedback. It's your one and only, Ahmad Hamidu. Hello, APG family. Hope all of you are doing as great as I am, despite the challenging season. No thanks to a certain microscopic neighbor of the human race, running around trying to see if it can get humans to go where the dinosaurs went. It's been a while since I sent some feedback. I've been unavoidably busy trying to weather the skies of life in my part of the world. While trying to keep up with the podcast, I'm still way behind but slowly catching up. My feedback for today is about an idea that came to my mind about exterior inspections during pre-flighting. Despite the standardized methods of thoroughly checking out an aircraft before flying it, you will all agree with me that there always will be areas on a checked aircraft that don't get checked even with the strictest adherence to check flow. All because those areas are hard or impossible to reach without the aid of certain height or space assisting equipment. For instance, walkarounds can't give you access to the upper surface of the wings or stabilizers. Neither can you get a good peep into your pitot probes or static ports to see if a bug or chewing gum is blocking its orifice. You can't even check the integrity of that red blinker lamp on your airliner's dorsal side. How nice would it be if regulations were to allow flight crews to pop out from their pockets those compact drones and fly them around the aircraft with one pilot flying the drone and the other pilot viewing the video feed from the drone's HD camera. Such a drone would be dedicated and restricted to exterior checks of the aircraft only. Once done, they would be flown down, recovered, deactivated and stowed away for the next round of exterior inspection. What do you guys think of this? Should the FAA consider it? This is just one of my weird thoughts running rife in my restless mind, sometimes putting me in a brief trance-like state. So intense that my heartbeat rate gets altered, mildly due to the eureka-like excitement over untested ideas. And that is my feedback for now. Until I catch another inspiring wave, here's wishing all of you, presenters and listeners, a safe transit through the global pandemic. Over and out. (laughs) Thank you, Ahmed. Very, very entertaining. I I love it. Absolutely love it. What do you think, What a great idea. Yeah. Get your little drone out there, you know, and do the yeah. Do I'd, the, I'd be I'd be doing naughty things with it though. Um, I I I, <laughs> I uh, love the way your mind works, Ahmed. Uh, uh, but uh, to involve two of us in the walk round, where normally it only requires one, well, I'm not too sure about that because the other blokes normally doing very important stuff up the front, and a walk round takes fifteen minutes. And if you're going to use both of you. For 15 minutes, that's 15 minutes that you have to make up somewhere. Uh, so I'm not too sure about that. And um, quite honestly, uh, peering down a pitot probe with a little camera on one of those little drones, you're not going to be able to see much. So I can't see that working terribly well. And I think, generally speaking, the pilots uh, do a quick walk around. And it's more confidence check than anything else. And we're looking for gross errors. We're not really looking to examine every square inch of the aircraft. We don't have time to do that. And uh, certainly in my operation on a big jet, we have a team of engineers uh, who will have inspected and certified the aircraft to flight. So really most of the uh, inspection of the aircraft is done by them. And we're just doing it 
um, really is a bit of belt and braces. So um, I don't think it's really quite that important. The engineers may well, you know, in the future, find a use for those for particular inspections because I can see that if uh, they want to inspect a panel at the top of a 50-foot fin, uh, it would be a very clever way of doing it. But you probably need to be doing it inside a hangar uh, in a safe environment where if the drone went haywire, it didn't get inv- tangled up with aircraft that are taxiing around with engines running that sort of thing. Uh, so a little bit too complex for what is actually required, perhaps. I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, as you said, um, I, I can see a couple of um, times where that, drone might come in handy for instance you come out to the jet and you know that the night before there was a big thunderstorm system that went through and there was hail there's potentially hail damage to the top of the airplane or maybe the top of the horizontal stabilizer on a t-tail airplane like the one that dana and i fly and it'd be kind of nice to be able to kind of check out things that you cannot normally see from the ground but um and then regular kind of maintenance procedures inside of a hangar where it's all nice and controlled. I could see that as well. And I think actually there are companies that are already doing that around the world. Mm-hmm. You know, and one of the things that uh, we get memo after memo after memo about, especially during the wintertime, Jeff, is uh, the unknown precipitation while the aircraft set overnight. Mm-hmm. And it would be a e- real easy way for an inspection of the engine inlets, the top of the, you know, top of the tail and top of the wings. Uh, it's sometimes really hard to get a very good look uh, at the wings from the cabin um, to see if there's really frost on them, and especially if the light is hitting it just the right way. So, um, yeah, I think that a drone would be very useful in that case uh, to inspect the, some some surfaces that we can't easily see that have critical uh, critical issues going on, especially that engine. The engine inlets, very difficult to see into them. Uh, and if anything, you know, froze, melted and froze back in there, that, you know, becomes a real huge issue for the engine performance and also damage. I guess the safety people would have to kind of, you know, see if one outweighs the other, you know, does the risk, um, you know, outweigh uh, the capabilities that it gives you or vice versa, you know, so whatever the safest operation. Yes, Steph. I was just gonna say, I don't, don't really struggle with this problem because the aircraft that I fly are generally close enough to the ground that doing the walk around does not present any challenges in terms of structures that are too high to mm-hmm. easily inspect. That's true. Um, you're Nick, muted, are you trying Nick. to say something? <laughs> with that in mind, Steph, I'll yeah. just start here again uh, and not embarrassing myself at all. <laughs> just my pretend that you in. noticed. And your mouth moving. <laughs> yeah, we saw your mouth going wag around and everything. Oh, what's he doing? Rather than have an airplane that's small enough to just peer over, why don't we have those jet boots uh, that we can yes. fly around the aeroplane? I like that so idea a lot, That's a actually. much nicer idea than a drone. So we just strap on a walk-around pair of jet boots, unsafe. and then we can just jet around and hover around the aircraft uh, and look to ourselves. And that way you can actually touch the, the wing and the tailplane, the top of your T. You can waggle the elevators up and down. <laughs> That'd be a great idea. That'd be a lot of fun too, wouldn't it? So, Ahmed, I like your idea, but you didn't take it far enough. (laughs) You need to dream more. Now the drone is sounding very safe and like a great plan (laughs) in comparison to Captain Nick's ideas. No, 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 that jet boost way to go. Got to do it. All yes, right. Liz. Now, now Nick gets sucked into the engines, not just. The yeah, (laughs) Yeah, well, that wouldn't hurt me. It would just wreck the engines. 
I'm going to quickly or try to quickly do this. This is a long uh, piece of feedback from Anonymous. And um, uh, and then after that, we're going to go do the, uh, the plain tale for this episode. So uh, item three, hello, my favorite aviators. I wanted to share my story with you all about the process of getting my third class medical. For obvious reasons, I prefer to remain anonymous. Back in 2014, I had a friend commit suicide and that affected me and my judgments. Shortly after that, I received a DUI for blowing a .1 after leaving a concert. The police also found a glass pipe, which went into the police report. I dealt with all of that. It was expensive and a pain in the APU exhaust. In early 2019, I wanted to start taking flying lessons, didn't really think my medical was going to be an issue, so I kind of blew it off until my CFI started uh, pestering me about my first solo. I figured it would be a trip to the doctor office, and that was it. I learned my lesson really quickly. I was deferred for a few reasons, the biggest being the DUI, next being a small bout of depression from previous episodes, and a muscle relaxer I take for my scoliosis. My AME explained to me that I will get through this with his help. He wrote a note about the muscle relaxers, and that ended up being the least of my worries. The first letter from the FAA came within uh, two weeks came with a two-page list of the things they wanted, including all court documents, 10-year driving record, letter from the diagnosing physician about the depression, a letter from me explaining my alcohol use. I really don't drink, like ever. And they also wanted three professional references that explain my level of responsibility. They wanted this within 60 days of me receiving the letter. My depression was diagnosed from a doctor at my university clinic. I called them and they barely had any records of my visits, period. So I ended up scheduling an appointment with my general care doctor. She read the letter and was incredibly confused. But we ended up agreeing that a letter from her stating that I'm not depressed was going to be all she could do. Next step was going to the courthouse to get all my court records. They literally lost my plea bargain and the proof of classes that I took. I asked for certified copies of the entire court record, and that ended up costing me about $60. And she, the court clerk, was not happy as I caught her right before lunch, and it took a good hour to get everything copied. I called my attorney at the time, and they immediately couldn't find the proof of classes either. His idea was to pay him for an hour so he could investigate the company I took the classes from. But the company was closed, so he ended up calling a friend of his, a friend to find the old owner, and the document was finally produced. Surprisingly, if you want a five-year driving record for from the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, that's around $20. But a 10-year copy is free, and an agent in my state personally emailed me my complete, almost whistle-clean driving record. I submitted this giant bundle of paperwork to the FAA, and I remember taking a picture of how thick the sheets were. After waiting three months, I came home from work and noticed that I missed a certified letter. It's like 5.30 in the evening at this point. The website says that the post office closes at 6, but they really close at 5. I ran down, I ran down there in a dead-on sprint, and the place was closed. A postal worker leaving for the day told me to come back the next day, but I begged her to help me get this letter. This was actually a mistake of mine. I signed for the letter, and she noted the date and time of me receiving it. I opened it up, and it was a notification from the FAA stating that I have 48 hours to submit for a five-panel forensic drug screening. In a nutshell, that's literally all the information they gave, that and a pre-addressed envelope. I worked in a job where we have weird hours but are critical once assigned to a job, and I happened to be working very long days the next few days, so I quickly realized I had to get that done that night. 
I hit the Google very hard trying to find out everything I could as quickly as I could. After trying all the typical drug testing places, none were open. My AME just went on vacation, so I couldn't contact him or the office, and it was too late to contact my general practitioner. About 9.30, I remembered that I had to take a drug test for a DOT physical to drive trucks, and that was also a 24-hour urgent care facility. I got there, they read the letter, and they were confused as all get out. Uh, They made various phone calls. They called their bosses at home, text message, anything to make sense of this letter. Then they think that they're out of tests anyway. So after an hour at the office, one nurse uh, finds an old expired test in some back storage area. Whatever. I took the test. Oh, yeah. I was sitting on the pre-addressed envelope and sweated it shut. It was summer. They sent it off to Quest Labs. Quest Labs analyzed the test, and I passed, of course. Uh, They've got to have some of the worst customer service I've ever experienced in my life. They refused to send the results to a standard FAA medical address and kept asking me which airline I worked for. They were complete idiots, to say the least. The urgent care was amazing. I went back there and explained what was going on, and they went through a lot of hoops to get a copy of the results to mail to the FAA. We had no idea if any of this was going to work at all. Luckily, I had insurance at the time because I only had to pay $50 copay for the urgent care. Uh, The cost of the test was actually about $750. I still don't know... Uh, how that was covered by insurance, but cool. About four months later, I got a shiny new printed piece of paper with the blessing of the FAA that I'm physically and mentally suited to a to pilot in command a Cessna 172. I passed the solo stage check, got really busy with work again, and then COVID hit, absolutely obliterating the enti- entertainment business, resulting in my immediate termination of employment, which means no more flying for a while. I wanted to share this for any pilots who might have had some trouble in the past as well. There really isn't a lot of information online about this topic, but I am proof that it is possible with honesty and lots of paperwork. I remember Dr. Steph joking about applying to be an airline pilot in a recent episode, assuming she had the hours and other requirements. How would her doctorship affect her employment possibilities with a major airline such as Acme. Would Acme try to match a doctor's salary (laughs) or even see that as a desirable trait in a pilot? I couldn't see why not. Also, assuming that we're back in the pre-COVID-19 economy with the pilot shortage. Thank you, captains. I will not be offended if you can't fit this lengthy feedback in. Well, I try to read it really, really fast, anonymous. (laughs) But, um, Steph, what do you think? Do you think uh, you could uh, get on with Acme and they, they would pay you whatever your equivalent salary is uh, as a doctor? Well, Anonymous, who said I was joking, first of all? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think they would pay me my doctor's salary. Um, I don't. Yeah, nope. I would not. Nope. And I, what, I can't Dr. even think Steph, of a good reason why. Take, you wouldn't want to take a pay cut then? <laughs> I, let's just say if, if I was going to be flying for a career at that point, it would not be about the money. Um, which I, you know, I think for a lot of folks, it, it, the money's a nice perk of having a career in aviation, but it's not the only reason why they do it. So, no, um, not for most of us, not for most. Yeah. If I could, I'd fly for free. Um, would it be a desirable trait to have a pilot as, or have a doctor as a pilot? Um, you know, we talk a lot about from from a, a lot of the things you have to go through to prove your worth to be hired as a, a pilot have to do with being responsible and being able to follow through on um, your commitments and and uh, 
things like that. So that's why, you know, having a, a university degree is, is such a big deal. So I think from that standpoint, it would be a, a positive. Yeah, we, we uh, in the Air Force uh, used to have doctors that joined uh, and went through all the pilot training and then did one entire tour on the front line and then resumed their uh, doctor's duties as mm -hmm. uh, a, as aviation doctors in the Air Force. Uh, and they were, of course, perfect, uh, really great blokes because they had seen uh, both sides of the coin and uh, they were fantastic. Uh, the Air Force, I don't, can't afford, really afford to do that anymore. But uh, in the old days, I think it was a great idea. Yeah. Sure. Liz brings up the good point. Familiar with checklists. Yes. Uh, and I've talked before about how aviation and medicine kind of two, two sides of the same coin sometimes in terms of... Um, the way we think and do things operationally. So. Yeah. I, I can see a day when you'd be like some of the pilots I've flown with in my outfit uh, who were uh, very wealthy and did the job um, I, for I hope fun. that day comes soon. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so do I. Um, because, uh, I mean, they, they basically made enough money in whatever they used to do before and then got bored with that and uh, decided to become airline pilots. So the job was like a sideline, and they did it for fun, and they were the most fun people to fly with. They were great, often very professional, but, uh, you know, just had a really kind of... Uh, but there for the love of the job. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And didn't really get wound up about anything. It was uh, super. Exactly. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, thank you, Anonymous, for your uh, telling us about your experience getting your third-class medical. It seems like it was quite a hassle, but maybe some encouragement for people out there who are running into the same type of issues. Oh, a yeah, very honest uh, letter and uh, really, I think, um, very valuable to a lot of people. Thanks. Yeah, and I know we got to move on, but I know we've talked about it in the past where <clears> – <throat> excuse me, sorry. I'm getting whatever Nick has is contagious here. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Don't do that. Use the microphone. Now we've all got it uh, right through my headphones. Uh, you know, we've talked to it, to be perfectly honest, you know, we've talked about in the past where folks have had issues with getting their medical for one reason or another. Um, obviously, this is um, one that no one wants to have to deal with, but uh, a good place to start always is with your your AME, be honest and upfront with everything. And there's a lot that they can get you get you through. Not everything has to be is is completely cut and dry. Yes and no, you won't be able to fly. So true. All right. Well, with that, we're going to go ahead and move to it's true. the, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I was a bit late. <laughs> oh, here. Oh, that's true. <laughs> um, it's time now for uh, the best part of the show, which is the old. Oh, we're finishing? Play, yeah. The, the, the end of the show. That's the best part of it. Yeah, this hey, is hey, over. It's almost over. <laughs> Trust me. But now what am I going to do for the rest of the week? All right. Uh, let's listen to this week's installment of The Plain Tales. And this one, I'm not even going to try to pronounce. The Old Pilot's Plain Tales. The Battle of Arshau. It had been early in the Vietnam War that the Arshau Special Forces Camp was built in the valley of the same name, about 30 miles southwest of Hawaii, only a mile and a quarter from the Laos border. 
The valley was important to the Viet Cong because it formed a bridge between the Ho Chi Minh Trail and the populated coastal area of Tura Tien Province. The camp was established in 1963, and when the battle started in 66, it was defended by 17 Greenberries, a mobile strike unit of special forces, and around 400 South Vietnamese irregulars. The camp had received intelligence from North Vietnamese defectors that four battalions of the Viet Cong, 325th Division, some 2,000 troops, were planning to attack, and on the night of the 8th of March, the first assault was launched. Poor weather initially prevented air support, so, although beaten back at first, the North Vietnamese army continued to attack despite heavy casualties. On the 9th, after a fierce mortar bombardment, which reduced many defensive positions to rubble, more attacks followed, but this time U.S. air support was able to assist. It was far from ideal, since the weather put the American aircraft below a low cloud base. At that altitude, they suffered withering ground fire from the Viet Cong, a USAF AC-47 spooky gunship was downed and supply drops meant for the camp, which landed outside the perimeter, couldn't be retrieved. The next day, another wave of enemy troops attacked with recoilless rifle fire and mortars and an assault team that broke through the perimeter and had to be beaten off in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Throughout the day, American forces provided air support hitting enemy positions around the camp, and it was during one of these missions that Dick Andrews looked down from the cockpit of his SPAD, more formally known as the Douglas A-1 Sky Raider, as the scene unfolded below him. A short distance from the battle around the camp, he was watching an act of courage that would be recognised as one of the bravest feats of the Vietnam War. He thought momentarily of his friend, fellow pilot and commander of the 602nd Air Commando Squadron, Richard Wilsey, whose men were fighting for their lives below. Dick was flying top cover for those pilots that day, and it was a memory that he shared with Wilsey that came flooding back to him. It was in 1944, during the Second World War, and the day after his 20th birthday, that Andrews had been flying a P-38 Lightning over the Polesti oil fields of Romania. His squadron had been dive-bombing, and Wilsey, the 96th Fighter Squadron's operation officer and one of the most experienced pilots in the group, had been hit by enemy ground fire. An anti-aircraft shell exploded next to his cockpit and shrapnel hit his head whilst other shells tore into his aircraft, throwing it about and lifting his feet off the rudder pedals. Wilsey already had 60 missions under his belt and had downed an ME-109 and a Blomenvoss 238 massive six-engine flying boat, but it looked like this might be his last flight when his left engine started streaming oil. He feathered the prop, but then noticed that his good engine was leaking radiator coolant 
and he knew that within a few minutes it would also fail. Already he couldn't maintain altitude, and he called his flight group to tell them that he was going down. Andrews, on only his 11th mission, was on Wilsey's wing that day and called for him to pick a good spot. I'm coming down after you. Dick wondered for a moment what Andrews meant, but he was too busy setting up for a forced landing to work out what the youngster had in mind. As the rest of his squadron fought off a group of German fighters, he picked a farmer's ploughed field, and whilst his remaining engine coughed and spluttered, a fresh hit smashed his windscreen, blooding his forehead. But he managed to get the wounded lightning over the last obstacle before landing the aircraft on its belly along the furrows of turned earth. As the fighter bucked and heaved on the uneven ground, he put his head forward onto the padded gun sight, but still took a beating to his face before the aircraft skidded to a halt. He clambered out of the fighter and grabbed a small phosphorus grenade which he threw into the cockpit, setting the wreck alight. As his beloved P-38 burned, he spotted a truckload of German troops approaching from the tree line, and then he was buzzed by more Messerschmitts. He could hear the whine of rifle fire passing close by, but then came the more familiar sound of another aircraft, and he turned, in amazement, to see a P-38 with gear and flaps down touching down onto the soft earth. The moment that he realised his leader was in trouble, Dick Andrews had made up his mind to help. Wilsey was going down into a hornet's nest of enemy troops, but that didn't change his mind, and Andrews lined his lightning up on the same field, setting the flaps an undercarriage. Then he realised he was too close, so raised his gear and eased the aircraft round through 270 degrees and tried again. This time he was better set up, and he made a good landing across the furrows and managed to stop about a hundred feet from a cornfield. He quickly pulled his flaps up and then positioned them for takeoff, set the engines at 1800 rpm and put the park brake on. As soon as he realised what was going on, Wilsey started running towards Andrew's aircraft, and as he got there he saw Dick was out on the wing, throwing his parachute away and dropping the folding ladder. Andrews held his hand down to help Wilsey up onto the wing and shouted, You fly! How they both fitted into the cockpit was a miracle. It was a good job that they were slender young men, but Dick Wilsey got in the front and sat as far forward as possible, whilst Dick Andrews slid in behind him with one leg over Wilsey's shoulder and the other down under his left arm. Within seconds, the two Dicks had the cockpit closed and Wilsey set low pitch, held the stick back and eased the throttles fully open. As they started bumping over the soft ground, the nose wheel started digging in, but with two of them in the cockpit, Dick couldn't get the stick far back enough, so he wound the trim to full up, the wheel lifted clear, and they started rolling. They rushed towards the trees at the end of the field, and it didn't look like they would make it, but a well-timed selection of combat flap helped them to lift off, and they scraped over. Wilsey said later that he was glad those trees hadn't been ten feet taller. 
What followed was an uncomfortable two and a half hours of flight to their Russian refuelling base at Poltava. But they kept their spirits up, joking and kidding with each other, and Andrews managed to swab the bleeding Wilsey with iodine. When they climbed out, the crew chiefs were amazed to see two of them get out of the same cockpit. After a couple of days, they returned to Foggia, their base in Italy, and were greeted like celebrities. As young Dick Andrews stepped out of his aircraft, he was greeted by General Nathan Twining, who awarded him an immediate field promotion to second lieutenant and pinned the silver star for gallantry onto his chest. Now, 22 years later, Dick Andrews was flying over the Battle of Achao and feeling déjà vu as he saw what was going on beneath him. The actors below playing out the scene of extreme bravery were Bernie Fisher and Jump Myers. The fight for survival in the Ashau Special Forces camp had not been going well. Despite large losses, the North Vietnamese outnumbered the Americans and their allies who were running short of ammunition and had also received a number of casualties. The nearby airstrip had been overrun, but the spads from the air commando squadrons continued their air attacks. Major Dafford Myers was leading a flight of sky raiders, strafing and dropping ordnance on the enemy troops when his engine was hit by ground fire. With the massive motor dead and flames licking around his cowling, his heart sank. He got a call that he was on fire and burning clear back to his tail. Realising that he was going down, he was already too low to abandon his spad, so he decided to crash-land the machine. Jump, as he was known, knew that going down into the jungle was the worst option. His only chance of survival was to use the runway that served the camp one made of pierced steel planking, but now controlled by the North Vietnamese. He dropped the rest of his bomb load and lined up with the jungle strip for a wheels-up landing. On touching down, his spad skidded sideways for nearly 600 feet before hitting a bank and bursting into a large ball of flame. Those above assumed the worse, and that Myers must have perished. Indeed, that was the call that was made back to command, but then the smoke momentarily cleared, and Jump was spotted running across his wing out of the inferno and getting into a ditch behind the bank. Overhead, leading a spad flight from a different unit, was Major Bernie Fisher. Bernie was a modest man, wholly lacking in the flyboy swagger that was common amongst combat pilots. He used to be a scoutmaster who loved aviation, sometimes flying over camping events and dropping sweets and candy onto the delighted scouts below. He volunteered for duty in Vietnam and flew some 200 combat missions, during a period when the casualty rate amongst his fellow pilots rose as high as 40%. A fellow aviator described him as a family man who didn't drink or smoke 
and the strongest swear word he ever used was shucks. Bernie had seen Jump survive, and he started to coordinate a rescue helicopter. But after ten minutes, when he asked where the chopper was, he was told it was still twenty minutes away. In the meantime, the Spads had been attacking the Viet Cong troops, who were intent on capturing or killing Jump Myers, trying to hold them off. One veteran of the battle later likened it to flying inside the Yankee Stadium with all the people in the bleachers firing at him with machine guns. Bernie realised that, regardless of their efforts, Myers was going to be overrun, and despite not even knowing the man, he decided to land and pick him up. His fellow aviators tried to dissuade him, but he was adamant. Control told him the strip was about 3,300 feet long, barely long enough for a spad, but in reality it was only 2,500 feet. He came in through smoke and fire at about 95 knots and touched down, slipping and skidding on and off the strip, and then, as he came up to the end, he realised he couldn't stop. He ran off the runway with red-hot brakes, damaging a wing and the tail section, almost careering into a fuel dump. But luckily, as he swung his aircraft around, his wing passed over most of the barrels of fuel. He pointed back down the runway and taxied along it, skirting all kind of debris, until he saw Myers make a fierce sprint towards the aircraft. Bernie lost sight of him in the smoke and thought that he must have been hit, so he set the brakes and unstrapped to help him, but then Myers jumped up onto the wing. Nobody's ever seen an old man like me run so fast in his life, Myers, then 46, said later. Two other Sky Raiders raked the area with bullets, reportedly killing a North Vietnamese only a few yards from the running pilot. Bernie grabbed Jump Meyer's flight suit and pulled him head first into the Sky Raider, spun around and sat on him. It was hard on his head, but he didn't complain, Bernie said. We didn't talk much, but he kind of looked up and gave me a weak smile and mumbled something like, You're one crazy son of a gun. Bernie Fisher later admitted in his quiet way, that he thought they were in serious trouble, but he gunned the 18 cylinders of his mighty right cyclone engine and set off down the strip, barely managing to get the spad off the ground in time. The aircraft was taking all sorts of fire as enemy soldiers peppered the machine. Then Myers, slathered in mud, oil and soot, asked for a cigarette. Sorry. I don't smoke, came the reply. After Major Fisher returned to his base at Pliku, the ground crew counted 19 bullet holes in the aircraft. Meanwhile, the Battle of Assau continued, but as the situation became more desperate, the decision was finally made to evacuate. Abandoned equipment was destroyed and 15 Sikorsky H-34C bats, supported by four Iroquois gunships, flew in. 
Sadly, the helicopters were mobbed by South Vietnamese soldiers and civilians and became so overloaded that the special forces were forced to throw some of their allies off so that they could get airborne. Two of the transport helicopters were lost to ground fire. After the battle, only five American ground troops were declared missing, but somewhere between two and three hundred South Vietnamese troops were killed or missing. The U.S. estimated that 800 Viet Cong were killed. Jeff Underwood, historian of the National Museum of the United States Air Force at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Ohio, said the battle in the Ashau Valley was ultimately a victory for the North Vietnamese, but he also said that the engagement and Major Fisher's bravery helped boost morale for fellow airmen and for soldiers sent to similar dangerous and isolated outposts. Bernie Fisher was often asked why he took the risk, landing on an airstrip littered with debris, surrounded by hills and bristling with guns, to save a man he barely knew. He replied that a comrade in arms was about to be killed, and he believed that he could save him. It's important that you respond to your feelings when the time comes for it, he said. On his return to the United States on the 19th of January 1967, he was presented the Medal of Honor by President Lyndon B. Johnson in a White House ceremony. He was the first living Air Force recipient of the medal, all previous awards having been posthumous and the first USAF member to receive the medal in the Vietnam War. Of note, Fisher had already earned a silver star the previous day, whilst flying support for the same battle. It turned out that Jump Myers had been promoted to Lieutenant Colonel that morning, and didn't think he would ever put his eagles up, but thanks to Bernie Fisher, he got the chance. Myers called Bernie Fisher every year on the anniversary of the rescue to wish him well, and after he died in 1992, his daughter kept up the tradition for 22 more years. Bernie Fisher passed away in 2014 at the age of 87, but his Sky Raider, number 32649, is on display at the National Museum of the United States Air Force in Dayton, Ohio. Wow, another stunning... Crew, I was going to say crew log. Plain tail. Um, oh, hang on. I hear somebody's at the door. I think somebody from Imperfect Foods is dropping off something. <laughs> <laughs> that Another was delivery. Yeah. yeah. Where are you going to stick this one, Jeff? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and some kind of a fisher. Yeah, probably. <sighs> you know, uh, I, I just get such a kick out of stories like that because, uh, you know, uh, you. you 
you had so many brave people doing so many brave things during the Vietnam War, and it ended in such a shambles that people forget such enormous acts of uh, mm-hmm. of heroism uh, that occurred. And uh, for me, they're just little nuggets of gold when I can find them. And the fact that you had the two pilots that were involved in the first incident, one was the CEO of the guy's squadron, the other one was actually airborne over the top of the second rescue, yeah. I just think is an amazing uh, coincidence. And mm-hmm. what a fabulous uh, story to find. I was so lucky. Do you, did you uh, happen to see that uh, Sky Raider at the uh, U.S. Air Force Museum last July, Nick? Yeah, I know. I, I didn't. And, and I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish, now that I found the story that mm-hmm. I had s- uh, sorted out and taken and looked at, I would have spent, you know, just a few minutes gazing at it. Uh, reliving that story and how much I want now to go back yeah. and find it again and uh, just spend a few moments thinking of how brave Bernie Fisher was and what an amazing feat of flying that was to uh, get into that little airstrip and out again safely. Yeah. I just want to say thank you for sharing those stories with us as you always do because certainly I don't know a lot of those and I, I don't know that many people do. So. I, I love bringing them to people's attention, and the 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 more intimate they are, and the rarer they are, the more the more it gives me uh, satisfaction. So, I, people often uh, get, suggest stories that are actually quite well known, and I love the idea. Uh, but you know, it's the ones that people don't know about, uh, have perhaps forgotten about. I think are a little tre- treasures uh, from mm. my point of view. Yeah, expand our knowledge. Yeah. The things that yeah. didn't get the recognition they needed in the first place. Yeah. Very much so. And perhaps they did at the time, but you know, as time goes on, a lot of the stories are uh, just set aside and forgotten. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, I love the chance to be able to bring them back to people's attention. Glenn said he spent three days in that museum, and he uh, he reckons he saw the aircraft but didn't know the story. So I, yeah. I'm so glad that I've been able to uh, uh, relate it. Well, the next time we go. We'll know the story and appreciate oh, that airplane even back. more. Oh, I definitely yeah. want to go back. <laughs> All right. Meet up whenever we get to do the meetups again, right? <laughs> sure, you bet. Yeah, 100%. Oh, hey, look look who's uh, here on the screen all of a sudden. Uh, let's see. It's kind of loud, isn't it? Um, from the Valley of the Sun, world traveler, airplane mechanic, Breitling Cognoscenti, fitness hound and international air freight captain it's miami rick hey everybody listen to that listen to that track big old jet airliner man (laughs) oh yeah all right that's your music for now until we can think of something else let's see let's see what happens let's see what happens you never know and uh so hey it's actually through the magic of podcasting uh the last um i don't know about a minute ago if you're listening to the uh, podcast right now we were on thursday i think was it thursday yeah um i'm i'm confused now was it thursday or friday we what day is today i don't thursday. know I think it's saturday it was it thursday, was thursday. And then we were gonna go we were gonna go ahead and do friday and had some issues with my internet uh new internet fiber installation and oh yeah how's it working um well i don't have it actually so I'm still using the old stuff. What? Yeah. All so, that for no. yeah. So sorry, Rick, I'm kind of messing up your what you've been doing, but let me just quickly no, no, tell no, you. Fine. So what happened was the AT&T guy comes over 
and says um, his name's Oz, really nice guy. And he kind of looks and sees, sees where, you know, everything's going to go and what, you know, where he's going to put the hole in the wall and everything else. And then he goes, okay, I'm going to go up to the street and see if you're getting good light. And so I guess, you know, from the fiber and then about a half an hour goes by and I don't hear anything or see anything going on. An hour goes by. don't see anything, hear anything going on. I walked out outside the, his van or truck or whatever is gone. <laughs> where, where the heck did he go? And, uh, finally about two or three hours later, he comes back and he goes, uh, yeah, I'm not going to be able to do the install today. We ran into a little issue. And I said, well, what's going on? He said, well, I guess like a year or two ago when they first introduced, uh, the fiber to our neighborhood, um, one of my neighbors, um, and I know the guy He's a great guy, Ken, um, he had it installed in his house, but there was some kind of an issue with the port that they were supposed to use for his connection. So they went ahead and used my port, my connection, uh, because it was available. I wasn't using it and they thought, you know, we'll, we'll come back and fix that later. <laughs> well, that was mm. a while back and nobody ever came to fix the thing. So he said, yeah, yeah I went up to your neighbor and asked, uh, he said, I'm going to have to shut down your internet for a little while. And, uh, so I can connect, you know, Jeff and he goes, Oh, I can't no. Uh, I, I need this internet connection for him. He's working from home. So I said, no problem. I still have the cable internet already. So no big deal. So he, he's going to try to sort this all out, I think tomorrow, and then maybe come back Monday or Tuesday for the, another try at the installation. So wow, that's what happened. So it could, turns out I could have done the show yesterday. Um, but here we are today, Saturday morning and Rick has joined us. And so what, what's been happening there, Rick? Well, I, uh, I finished up training, um, last, uh, what was it? Monday was my last, uh, day of training there and, um, uh, got on a, on a, on a jet airliner made it all the way back out to the uh, Southwest. And, uh, here I am catching up on, uh, two months of work around the house. So, uh, lots of fun. But uh, it's interesting. I mean, it was it was interesting getting on that plane, Ken, over here, um, going through the airport. Everything was kind of, you know, Surreal, running at about right? running at about ten percent. You know, mm-hmm. just uh, pilots, uh, the airline crew, and then crew crew uh, just walking around civilian clothes. Everybody with their IDs and and uh, it was and the masks, and it's just just weird, just weird. Just just can't wait for this whole thing to be over. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So how did the, uh, how did the training go? The end of the training, you did a, some kind of a line oriented flying training event or something. Yeah. So, uh, so what we did, so after, after the check right, which was, uh, two weeks ago today, actually, um, there were a couple extra, a couple of things that we had to do to actually finish up the training altogether. Um, a couple of days of, um, <clears throat> of classroom. And then we did a simulator on the uh, we did a, a ride a couple hours on the on the large display system. You know, the uh, there's this modification on the seven five seven six cockpit where they install these big screens and, 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 you know, and, and they take out the old, you know, the old CRT screen. So LDS, right? The LDS, exactly. The LDS system. That was really cool. So we got we got to do that and do uh, and do our uh, upset recovery training in that. So they put you on in all sorts of weird, you know, attitudes and pitch and roll. And, and you have to kind of, you know, fly your way out of it. There's a little bit of classroom before that as well. And the, the whole idea is trying to, you know, just just keep the maneuver as close to one G as possible. So that's so that's not to uh, overstress the airplane. And there's a way of doing that as well. So that was kind of interesting. And then the, and then after that, on Tuesday, that 
was the last day. Uh, we did what's called a loft. It's a line oriented flight training, which is a uh, uh, it's a two part session. So uh, my training partner flew the first part, which was a, a short flight between um, uh, Kennedy and Boston. And this is in, in real time, right? You get you get on. You get on the jet, you go through all the paperwork, you load the box, and and uh, you you deal with the, whether the flight instructor is you know your your dispatcher, your mechanic, your your purser, and you kind of have to you know play play the game and 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 involve everyone in, in in the operation as if it was a real flight. So we did uh, New York to Boston, and then uh, we switched, and then the second leg was Boston to uh, Frankfurt. Obviously, we didn't do the whole flight, and the whole purpose of the second leg was to um, apply what we learned or reviewed a couple of days before that in the classroom, which was um, uh, directly related to uh, an engine event during a Atlantic crossing, because uh, now now going back to flying uh, a, a, a you know a light twin, there are certain considerations. Like <laughs> <Light laughs> certain, <twins. laughs> <laughs> oh. well, well, it is. <laughs> there are certain considerations with with uh, what happens and what to do if you lose an engine, especially when flying across the North Atlantic. You know, you can't. The, there are, there are very very defined um, highways, if you will. That you that you that you you know that you fly um, uh, the North Atlantic across. So basically, if something happens, you can't just descend or you can't just turn any which way. There's 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 procedures to follow. You know, thirty degrees off of your track, descend down to uh, twenty eight thousand feet below the North Atlantic track system before you begin your turn, and in the meantime, dealing with the emergency, trying to get a hold of ATC. You know, applying all, applying all the procedures, and then at the end, uh, divert to uh, your uh, near suitable airport as per the checklist. And then you have to fly a, um, a single engine ILS, which at that point we've done, we've done so many of those damn things that at this point I can do them with my eyes closed. So mm-hmm. that uh, the, the single engine stuff was really not an issue at all, but it was, it's interesting because you actually get to, you actually get to do it and knock on wood, you know, that's, that's the only time it happens. Mm. Um, so, so that was interesting. And then uh, you, you get your final sign off then, and then you're done. Um, you trade in your flight simulator folder for a flight training folder, which I got in here. And then now, uh, in the next, uh, two weeks or so, I'll be, uh, hitting the road again and, uh, starting to offer an experience. So hopefully, uh, uh here's the thing though. I have to have a hundred hours of flight before 120 days. It's called a uh, consolidation. And this when is does the 120 days start. Uh, from the date of your check, right? So for me, it's uh, July the 6th. Now that's extendable to 150 days if I see that and I'm not going to make it. So mm-hmm. so th- the problem with that is that if I don't get those 100 hours and 120 extendable to 150, I have to go back to the simulator and do another proficiency check, kind of like a, a yearly check, right? And then the we'll clock resets. No, no, no. So the idea here is to try to, you know, get out in the road and and uh, and do as many legs as I can. Now the the thing here is hopefully, hopefully I'll 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 do some international flying because if if, if I just you know get stuck with doing DHL or Amazon turns, it's not gonna it's not gonna be too. It's gonna take a long time to get that hundred hours. Exactly. So uh, so let's see. Let's let's keep them crossed so that yeah. I can get that done. Um, so that that's basically what I've been up to. Now you know, just back home now, as I said, working at home, catching up on two months worth of stuff, and just uh, sitting back in your uh, lazy boy and watching the TV, right? Watching streaming mm-hmm. uh, video on YouTube and Hulu and Netflix, I, right? I gotta catch up on my stories. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, actually, you, he's been out there working hard. Is the um, how, how's the weather? Is it, is it like stinking hot already, or is it not? No, bad? no, it's beautiful. Actually, it's great. It's oh. great. Uh, it's, it's sunny. Today's a little cloudy though. It looks like it's going to rain, and the the nights are still. I mean, uh, they're still a little little nippy at night. And it gets gets to the gets to the mid fifties. And a little windy, but uh, but it's good. You know, it's uh, I tell you, two months from now, we're going to be hoping we have this weather. It's, <laughs> yeah, uh, 120 it, degrees or something it's, ridiculous, right? Exactly right. It's a dry heat, though. You'll be fine. <laughs> it's, a, it's a dry heat. Exactly. <laughs> we used to do uh, these all-nighters, red eyes from um, Phoenix to Atlanta. And I, I was out there, I think it was like 116. And I'm thinking, okay, let's let's you know, meet downstairs and we'll walk over to this restaurant just a couple blocks away. And I'm like walking through the middle of the street and thinking, this is not bad. What are these people complaining about? And about 20 steps later, I'm going, I think I'm going to collapse. <laughs> it <was> so hot. <laughs> yeah. And, and oh, forget yeah. touching like car handles, steering wheels, oh, yeah. your seatbelts. And I found, we found some shade. And when I got in the shade, it was like 20 degrees difference. It was amazingly oh, yeah. better in oh, the yeah. shade. Yeah. Like, wow. Okay. Cars, with, cars with leather seats. Not good oh. here. Yeah, so I thought, okay, now I get it. Yeah, they're not kidding when they say that it's it's pretty impressively hot. <sighs> All right. Well, good. I'm glad uh, that you're here with us for part two of uh, episode 420. And uh, we're going to try to keep it uh, the entire show within the three hours or maybe a little bit more than three hours. I hope you'll you know, let us off the hook, uh, dear listeners, for that. Uh, but we're going to try to knock out some more feedback. And I thought we'd start with uh, number eight in the feedback folder. So let me see. I need to pull that up myself. And uh, here we go. Um, oh, this is timely. Uh, this is from Brian. He said, hey, Jeff and crew, I haven't seen any feedback for a couple years. No, I haven't sent. I'm sorry. <laughs> what, do you, what, do you, what does he mean he hasn't seen any? We do it every show. Uh, I haven't sent any feedback for a couple of years, but had to say how delighted I am to have Rick back on the show. Ray. Yay. Thank you. And uh, when I started listening to the show, I had a significant commute to work and the AC in my car didn't work. There were times in the summer that the road noise was really loud, but I had to hear what Rick was explaining. So I would roll up my windows and just sweat like crazy so I could learn all about Fowler, Fowler flaps and whatnot. Anyway, uh, I think we're on the same brainwave. I have a few suggestions for an intro song for Rick. Sorry if this is a copyright nightmare. Maybe Jeff can just sing them. Ugh, you don't want that. Um, and then he lists a couple of um, items here. Um, ACDC's Back in Black, uh, Motorhead's uh, Bomber, The Rolling Stones' Who's Driving Your Plane, and from the Disney Planes soundtrack. Mark Holman, nothing can stop me now. And then, of course, the number one thing he listed here uh, was the Steve Miller band, Jet Airliner. And so uh, that you just heard that just a couple of minutes ago. Um, not the actual copyrighted version from Steve Miller band, but a, um, a karaoke version. So hopefully we'll be able to get away with that. If not, they'll take me away, <laughs> handcuff me and take me to jail. Anyway. Um, yeah. Terrible. I know. Uh, good to have you back, Rick. You're a par big part of what keeps me going toward my career goals. And this is Brian in SLC, Salt Lake City. That's so. great. Thank you very much, Brian. I appreciate that. I really, really do. Anybody out there, if you want to help us find a good uh, thing for a good theme song for Rick that is copyright um, 
what do you call that? Copyright free, not non-offensive copyright. Um, there's a, I'll put a link in the show notes to uh, YouTube has a really good audio library full of, I mean, thousands of selections for music. And that's uh, where I found the music for Dana's theme song. And so if you find something in there that you think might work with uh, Rick, uh, just let us know. Or if you have other other uh, access to other royalty free, copyright free kind of stuff, let us know. All right. Jumping over to nine uh, from Ralph. He says, uh, unusual, uh, seven unusual ways aircraft now fly cargo during the coronavirus outbreak. I guess this is an article from, well, it's a link to Apple News. I'm not sure exactly where this article is from, though. Apple News is kind of a consolidator of news. Um, So this article, again, seven unusual ways aircraft now fly cargo during the coronavirus outbreak. Um. Test aircraft. Airbus sent an A330-800 test aircraft from Toulouse to Tianjin. Is that how you pronounce that? Tianjin. Tianjin. In order to pick up approximately 2 million face masks and bring them back to France. Airbus said the majority would be donated to governments. Monitoring equipment is in the cabin and boxes of masks were loaded around the workstations. Uh, and they have a picture of the uh, inside of this uh, A330neo. From uh, Tianjin to uh, Toulouse. The aircraft MSN 1888 was used in the flight test campaign, campaign that concluded in February with the AZA and the FAA issuing a joint type certification. Uh, this airplane first flew November 2018 and accumulated 370 test flight hours across 132 flights. It's the second member of the A330 NEO family after the 33900, which is already in service. So, Nice picture of the inside of the uh, 330neo with a bunch of stuff, a bunch of boxes. Um, number two, military demonstrator. After the 330-800 returned from Toulouse, some of the masks it carried were loaded onto a an A400M for onward transport to, I don't know, what's this word, Getafe? Getafe? Getafe. It's Getafe. the uh, it's um Getafe. It's um uh, it's an Airbus right at yeah, right outside of Madrid. It's where they uh where uh Airbus runs their operation there in Spain. And it's really cool because as as you're as you're approaching the the uh, the Madrid airport, you actually fly right past it. So what about Torrejon? Is that still there near outside of Madrid? Torre- Torrejon as well, yeah. That I think that's a uh, that's their fighter base. That's uh, they have a bunch of eighteens there. So I used to fly in there all the time when I was in the uh, Air Force flying the one forty one. Yeah. Okay, uh, so they're going to put those masks into the Spanish health system uh, via that uh, base. Um, Dream Lifter, never heard of that. No, Let's me neither. Skip that one. No, yeah, yeah, but the, the picture there, I think that's the broken one. Oh, yeah, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was a hard landing. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. A hard crosswind quite, landing. Quite, quite the side load. <laughs> uh, Boeing is offering its Dreamlifter for relief missions, but the aircraft have not yet performed any such flights. Ordinarily, the Dreamlifter transports parts for the aircraft. It is named after the 787 Dreamliner. The four Dreamlifters are heavily modified 747s enlarged to carry the 787 wings and fuselage sections that typical freight aircraft cannot carry. Mm. Um, Dreamlifter has three times the volume of a normal 747 freighter. Much of the gain is 
from a taller cargo compartment. It's unclear how extensively cargo could be stacked on pallets to utilize this height. Mm. What do you think about that? Right. Yeah. So the so yeah, sixty five thousand cubic feet of of uh, of uh, cargo capacity. It's, it's it's amazing. It's insane. And 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 uh, and the uh, as far as weight is very very close to what a normal four hundred carries. Um, but the thing with the Dreamlifter is that um, it can only be operated in in and out of airports that have the equipment to support that type of operation. Because as you look at that picture there. Um, and if you look at any stock picture of the Dreamlifter uh, being loaded or unloaded, you'll see that the tail hinges to one side, right? And that's the the only way that you can get stuff into that main main um, main cargo compartment there. And uh, that um, the tail opening, the swing tail system here, does not work without a dedicated and and specialized truck that actually drives the tail open. Um, and those, and those, uh, and that piece of equipment is only located at, at uh, places where the Dreamlifter operates in and out of. Uh, so, obviously, in Seattle, uh, up in uh, Painfield, and Wichita, Kansas, over down in uh, in, uh, in in Charleston, uh, in uh, Nagoya, in Japan, and in Toronto, in southern Italy. Um, so, you can't really take this thing just anywhere you want to. And and another thing about the Dreamlifter is that. The fact that the tail opens that way uh, means that the airplane is not equipped with an auxiliary power unit, which usually you know, on, on the 747, not usually, it, it always sits at the very uh, end of the tail there, at the, at the tail cone. Uh, and the reason why there's no APU is because, one, weight, and then, two, the, the types of modifications that you'd have to accomplish to get the, the cabling and the pneumatics and the fuel from the main part of the jet to the uh, APU compartment there would be very, very complicated. And so the airplane has to be um, uh, the support equipment that the airplane needs to operate. It's, it's, it's quite, you know, it's, it's, it's complicated. So it, I don't know if it would be it, it viable from the point of view of the amount of volume of cargo that they can, can you know, carry around. But then it obviously, as I said, it can't really go, to very many places so uh so many maybe as maybe as a consolidation you know you, yeah. you, you'd, go, you'd go to certain airports to consolidate cargo and bring it from you know from east coast to west coast type of thing but i don't see that you know being being a viable option so i have a, uh, co- a couple questions about that um system for the tail and the dedicated mm-hmm. um flatbed and that kind of thing. have they ever had any um incidents or accidents regarding that i mean like you know them like wrecking the tail or messing up the hinges or anything like that uh no no thank goodness um now i i remember some time ago i put a thread on my on my on my twitter there uh explaining how the how the whole thing works and i Mm -hmm. i forget how many locks i think it's 16 locks that Mm -hmm. uh that go all the way around the uh, all all the way around the tail there and uh and this thing it, it it can take quite a bit of uh quite a bit of punishment because i i it's the dream lifter is not the 747 is not a hard plane to land at all. In fact, it's the easiest plane to land that I, I mean, personally, because it's just so big and so massive. And the fact that you enter a ground effect at 100 feet, because, you know, ground effect, one half of the wingspan and the airplane just kind of rides that cushion of air down. But the thing with the dream lifter is that you have such a large cross section so that uh, the area of the fuselage is so large that, you know, just a little bit of crosswind can make it really tricky. And so. When it's a little windy and gusty, oftentimes the landings are not the best. And so 
um, the the amount of stress that those locks and the tail and the tail hinge mechanism takes is it's 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 not minor. Um, but I'm sure, just like everything Boeing does, it's it's you know way over engineered. Over engineered, so, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you, you go you go through and you, and you do the walk around on, these, on this thing, and you and you look at the the size of the hinges, and the and the uh, and the panels around the hinge area, and on the other side where the locks are, uh, it's 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 a very dirty looking airplane in that it, uh, the amount of uh, just rivets and 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 splices of aluminum that goes around that, I guess for for strength purposes, it's just just unbelievable. So it's way over engineered. The uh, incident a few years back, um, before uh, I should note that you were flying for Acme Giant, uh, they they landed at um, the wrong airport uh, outside of uh, Wichita, uh, outside Colonel, of Wichita, yeah. Colonel Jabara or whatever um, mm-hmm. field, and I know that uh, they had some issues trying to get the thing all set up to to take off again and get to the to McConnell, I think, which is where they were trying to land. Was that thing? It was probably empty when they landed at Colonel Jabara. I imagine it must have been a a, a logistical nightmare to get the thing, you know, <laughs> unloaded because I I I don't know how how long that runway is at Jabara. It's not that long. No, it's like no four or five thousand feet, maybe Jeez. if that. I don't know. <laughs> but they, I, I do know that they said that they had to drive a tug from somewhere, probably McConnell drive mm. a truck tug all the way over to that airport to push the dream lifter back because there wasn't enough room for the thing to turn around on the exactly. runway. So they exactly. had to push it all the way back. But I'm, I was just thinking, well, if there was like stuff on there, then what about this specialized rig that they have to have to open up the tail to get the cargo? Uh, what a mess. Oh yeah. yeah. I was oh, going to yeah. ask what the crosswind limit was or the wind limit for moving that to opening that tail. I can't remember off the top of my head. Now these things, uh, let me see if I remember. Because the side door, the main cargo door for the the main deck door for the for the dash uh, four hundred freighter and the dash eight, um, the wind limit on that one is in the in the in the neighborhood of about what fifty knots to open and close. And if it gets to above that point, you can you go to the you go to the halfway point and you just kind of leave it there. Because the, the these doors are so big that they be, really do become part of the structural integrity of the fuselage themselves. So, so um, you don't want to open and close them when, with with too much wind around. But I don't know what the what the uh, what the uh, wind uh, uh, limit is on that uh, swing tail there. I'm uh, sure. If you got carried away, uh, I mean, it sounds like uh, there's a vehicle underneath it that actually does the positioning of it. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly so right. So there, that so doesn't sound like it would stand a lot of force. Right turn the vehicle yeah. over or something but yeah it's yeah. interesting it's fascinating to hear all the details right oh yeah this thing it's 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 such a such a crazy looking airplane i tell you every every everywhere we used to go with, with this thing even in even in nagoya because the the dream lifter basically lives in nagoya and down in japan there and there's a viewing area there and uh they've seen it for so many years and every time i went through there it was it was like the first time they were seeing it because you know people just lined up taking pictures and waving and, and same thing mm-hmm. in, in, in at Painfield because the uh, the um, the Dreamlifter operations is right next to the museum uh, Future True. of Flight I think it is right and so there's so there's a, a view and deck area there and people always up there you know waving and taking pictures and it's really rock star man I hey, tell you hey Rick. Question. Yeah. So the uh, picture that's in the article with this, the kind of forklift-looking thing uh-huh. behind the tail of the aircraft, is that the 
That's the one. That's what the one. You need to open the okay. exactly, exactly. Yeah. And at the very top there, like I, a forklift the, on steroids. Exactly right. And at the very, at the very, at the very uh, bottom part of the tail there, there's two support points. And I guess the 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 truck has this jack hydraulic jack mechanism that reaches up to that and and actually connects there. And then they unlock the tail and the guy drives the tail open and just stays there. Cause like, you know, just the tail by itself would not be able to stay open. Yeah, they wouldn't be position. able to remove it and just leave it hanging out there. huh? Exactly. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. Well, there are a couple other um, ways that they're using um, freighters to, let's see, unusual ways now to fly cargo, um, not necessarily airplanes that are specifically made for, carrying freight and one of the pictures and one of the items here, we're not going to go through all of them. uh, But one that I've seen a whole bunch of articles about are like putting cargo in like just a regular passenger airline cabin. And we were always, we were kind of going, well, I don't know if that, you know, is that allowed? Is that legal? And I've seen some, some articles that say that, you know, as long as they're not really super heavy and they can, they, so they can put the volume of cargo like masks and that kind of thing inside the, um, inside the cabin to- uh, toilet paper toilet paper yeah yeah, yeah. um but i guess uh, as long as you kind of figure like per seat it's kind of a standard size human i, I think weight. so but the thing that the big concern that a lot of people had and i guess the faa yaza etc had was the fact that you know the cargo um bays of these airplanes uh, have uh fire uh detection and suppression systems where the cabin doesn't and so mm. the way that they've been getting around doing this is they're having like flight attendants ride along on these cargo flights and if something catches on fire, they can put out the fire with a fire extinguisher. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, exactly. Right. And, and you know, an interesting thing about, about that, now that we're talking a little bit about, about, about freighters here is that the, um, so just, just as you said, freighters, the, the lower cargo decks, they do indeed have fire detection, fire protection, the main fire, the main cargo deck on, on a lot of these freighters, um, obviously have fire detection, but they don't have a dedicated chemical fire protection system. So the way you put fires out in these, in these freighters is um, you basically depressurize the cabin and descend down to 25,000 feet. And they figured that by descending to 25,000 feet, the amount of oxygen, well, not really the amount of oxygen because oxygen stays constant at 21% no matter where you are. But I guess that the, you know, the yeah. partial pressure is lower, right? And so that that would snuff the fire out. Um, so that's you know a, a lot of people don't don't know that don't know that the the main deck doesn't actually have a chemical fire suppression system. You just depressurize the airplane and fly twenty five thousand feet and stay there. Interesting. When we did positioning flights with uh, for short duration, we would carry no cabin crew at all for fire detection in the main part of the cabin. We would pin all the toilet doors open so that uh, if smoke occurred in the cabin, it would get into the toilet and the toilet smoke detectors would go mm. off, which used to alarm on the flight deck. Um, for longer flights uh, like this cargo-carrying uh, aircraft, we would have uh, cabin crew on board. Huh. Now, how do, how do they deal with the – with the? Uh, well, I guess they strap the cargo now because my, my question was – what if what if a of a CG shift issue with the with the uh, are the, I imagine the boxes are strapped down or they're secured in some way they can't just be you know placed willy nilly I I don't know the pictures that I've it seen looks, looks like, like from yeah. the plastic like they've used plastics to secure them down I don't know what's anchoring the plastic but uh, yeah. it is it interesting like they like shrink wrapped it to the seat right like just mm-hmm. 
yeah, a bunch exactly. of times around. Probably just duct tape. Or, or just don't turn the airplane upside down, then you'd be all right. Yeah, exactly. Keep it at 1G. should be all right. It, yeah. Looks like John Jester is helping us out here. The um, Dreamlifter 40 knots to open and can stay open to 60 knots. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's, that's impressive. That's limit. more than I expected. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. Anyway, uh, so if you want to see some of the other unusual ways that um, they're carrying cargo out there with uh, various uh, aero machines, uh, please see that in the uh, the item in the show notes. And uh, thank you again to Ralph for sending that in. Uh, let's jump over to number 13. And this is from Christian. Okay, so a few episodes back, we talked about this incident where a 757 Icelandic Air Boeing 757-200 um, was landing at Keflavik. It was very windy, but uh, not a lot of crosswind, mostly, I think, down the, down the runway, like 50 knots. A lot of wind, of course. I guess that's not unusual for Iceland. Um, and they, uh, they touched down normally, and then all of a sudden, the aircraft listed to the right, and the, for some reason, the right main gear collapsed. And uh, this is uh, Christian writes that you'll probably remember the Icelandic Air Boeing 757 that suffered a gear collapse. He said, apparently their nuts were too big. Excuse me? That's. Uh, I could so make a Boeing comment about that, but I'm not going to. <laughs> well, you got to have. Bi- well, okay. According to the article, uh, flightglobal.com. Uh, That's the, where I was going. <laughs> the Icelandic investigation authority has determined that the side strut of the landing gear detached from the shock strut. The two are connected by a swivel that had threads that underwent undersizing twice during maintenance work in both 2008 and 2019. This reduction in the diameter of the swivel threads was permitted, but required a special undersized nut to be manufactured. Investigators' initial measurements, however, showed that the nut from the landing gear was too large for the undersized swivel threads. Got that. I have that problem all the time. Uh, cockpit voice recordings show that the crew was not aware of any problems before the landing. Flight data recorder information revealed no abnormal loading during touchdown. Flare was normal and the jet initially touched down on its right, then left main landing gear. But as the nose was derotating, an abnormal sound was heard and the jet listed to the right, the right hand engine striking the runway before the nose gear made contact. And uh, as I said, the investigators found that the swivel nut and an associated washer were missing from the immediate scene and were located near the aircraft's touchdown point. A locking bolt for the nut was also found to have sheared. Mm. And uh, Christian ends this with a very clever comment. There are obviously no benefits to having oversized nuts. Okay. Thank you, Christian. You, for that. you tell that to the average squirrel. <laughs> they're yeah, they're, they're looking for the say. biggest nuts they can find out there. I think. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Christian. We do appreciate that. Um, let's see. Number four. Uh, this is from Victor and a question for Nick. So do you want me to read it, Nick, or do you want to do it? Um, yes, please. Please do, Jeff. I've, I've got the answer. but Okay. Uh, hi, Nick and the rest of the crew. I'm a longtime listener of APG and wanted to take this opportunity to thank you. For all the great work that you do, I am glad to let you know that you are all a part of why I am where I am in life right now. I'm a Swedish pilot student. I started my PPL five years ago. That's when I started listening to APG. Last year, I got accepted to one of Sweden's government-sponsored pilot programs. 
So right now I'm studying towards a MPL. Oh, is that multi-crew pilot um, license, I think, which is connected to one of the bigger airlines here in Scandinavia. In my program, there is a course which lets you lets us do a two-week internship at any aviation company we like. I would really like to do mine at Virgin, specifically their operations department. This is partly because I would love to see how they solve operational matters at such a big company, but I also think it would make me a better future pilot if I can understand the operations side too. Well, anyways, Nick, uh, what I'm asking of you is if you know anyone, I could contact and ask if it would be possible to come down for a couple of weeks see how things are done at Virgin. If not, that's okay too. I'm glad I got a chance to thank you all for inspiring me. With regards, Victor Nielsen. Oh, Victor, it's very uh, kind of you to write, and I'm delighted that uh, you would like to have positioned yourself with Virgin to learn a bit. Um, Funny old thing, Virgin has a big profile, but it's not a big airline. Um, I mean, it only has uh, 40, 45 airplanes. I mean, compared with... a company like the one whose hat I'm wearing, um, Acme, uh, has uh, hundreds of aeroplanes. So actually the operations empire is uh, very small, compact. There are a handful of uh, operators in there uh, um, during the day. And, you know, it's not like a big airline, as you would imagine, having been to the Acme operations um, center and seen it's the size of a football stadium. I'm not kidding. It's vast, full of people uh, all controlling that enormous empire. Virgin is tiny. You you could fit their entire operations room into the men's room. Um, so I don't know if it's an ideal airline for you to pick. And anyway, I did take a look around and uh, ask some questions. Uh, and uh, the answer I got was, this is obviously pre uh COVID-19 anyway for the, the moment, no, there'd be nothing, um, was that uh, um, Virgin uh, are sorry, but they don't have uh, any work experience opportunities, which would be the equivalent uh, work experience two weeks, uh, like an unpaid, you know, look-see. Um, and uh, they say uh, we'd want any work experience with us to be a meaningful one, um, but due to the large volume of requests, uh, our teams don't have the capacity. So basically, they just don't have spare people to look after someone who wants to come and spend a couple of weeks with them, unlike a much bigger empire where they would probably be able to accommodate, accommodate that. And even if I did know someone, who, which I don't, I've been out of the airline for over a year now, uh, I think the answer, sadly, would be exactly the same. So um, my personal feeling is if uh, you're going to, um, work uh, in Sweden, pick a Swedish airline uh, that you want to go and uh, experience. You'll probably get more benefit from that. All right. Good answer. Well, congratulations, uh, Victor, for uh, the work you've done so far. And I'm so happy that we were here to inspire you and keep you going during that time. Absolutely. Yeah. Good luck. Absolutely. Congratulations, man. That's, yeah. that's good work. We look forward to uh, hearing more good things from you. And hopefully that this COVID-19 thing around the world is not hampering your progress too much. All right. Very good. Um, So we know a a person in the podcasting world um, and used to live in North Carolina. Now he's out on the West coast working for the, uh, the this week in technology twit network. His name is ant 
and um, he's uh, listened to our show for quite some time. He's a big part of our community, and um, he sent us some audio feedback. So let's take a listen. Hey, APG crew. I'm Ant Pruitt. It's good to send a bit of feedback to you all. Captain Nick, Captain Jeff, Captain Dana, Miss Liz, Dr. Steph. Really does. um, mm, I am so happy to send this message and it it means a lot because I wanted to say thank you to the APG crew. Uh, Today, according to my computer, is April 8th, 2020. We're still in the middle of this pandemic stuff, and um, that's affecting a lot of things. It affects people like me, full-time podcasters. That's what I do. And unfortunately, the podcast world is taking a beating right now um, from a download standpoint. Everybody's podcasts are pretty much down because people aren't necessarily hopping in their car and going to work and in the middle of that, getting their routine podcast consumption in their routine is thrown off a little bit. So we've been spending the last couple of weeks of really pushing the promotion and trying to keep our downloads at a steady pace and growing because people like us, we depend on sponsors to support the show. And when the sponsors are, not seeing good numbers, they have every right to say, nah, that's okay. I don't want to support that show. Um, fortunately, I'm still podcasting. I still have a job and we're doing just fine. But it does mean a lot when I look through my Twitter notifications and see that people are replying to me and chit-chatting, whether they're friends or family or fans. And it really does mean a lot when they share out my show with everybody else that's in their social media, because it, it just, it does help boost the signal and gets more people interested and listening. So when I see APG crew retweeting my show, man, it just hit me right in the heart. Thank you. You all don't have to do that. And I know you all are busy and got your own stuff going on with your show, but it really does mean a lot when fellow content creators like yourself share other content creators work. So thank you for sharing my show, hands-on photography and my new show, hands-on wellness. That's twit.tv slash hop or twit.tv slash how. Thank you all so much. I'm a big fan of your show, as you already know. And um, I will continue to listen to this show because I just flat out love it. Even though you don't quite hit that 50% accuracy mark. It's all good though. I still love you. Thanks, y'all. <laughs> I just heard the bell, the 50% accuracy bell. Thanks, yes, we do on occasion. Yeah. yeah. Just. He's, Aunt a, he's a great guy, though. Had a chance to uh, hang out with him on occasion when he was back here in North Carolina. So he's we a, miss having you here, but. He's a big Clemson What's fan. That? Yes. Huge Clemson fan. Yes. In fact, so, almost every time you see him on any of his podcasts, he's wearing some kind of a bright orange something uh that lets you know you can you can take the man out of the carolinas but you can't take the carolinas out of him maybe uh, that's yeah. what she said <laughs> that's what she said i don't know why or well this is probably better this one oh that's true 
That's true. <laughs> um, <laughs> it is true. As I mentioned, um, yeah, you know, we're here. We, we support each other. And, and I really, you know, my heart goes out to those out there who are doing podcasting for a living. Now, we are not. We are employed in other ways um, here. We don't rely upon contributions to uh, the uh, show for, uh, you know, eating and, and uh, you know, roof over our heads and that kind of thing. Uh, but people like Ant do. And so it's and, and the advertising, you know, the company that he works for, the podcasting network. Yeah, I see that my screen in the back has done something wonky, but that's all right. doesn't matter. Um, he uh, they, they depend primarily on support from advertising. And that's a big podcasting network. And when they when the advertisers say you know nobody's listening um, and, and we really don't have this extra money to give you to support you um, it, they're hurting and uh, so it's very important for all of us to uh, make sure that we as much as we can you know try to support the people that are doing this for a living so um, again it was hands just timely on, on your background change there too since it's oh. got uh, this weekend tech uh, oh yeah look at that right there twit. Okay. Um, yeah, because I, I watch a lot of their shows, including um, Ants, Hands on Photography and Hands on Wellness, which is brand new. Uh, just came out, I think, last week. All right. So uh, yeah, I I just wish you'd stop that show. Hands on your wife. <laughs> Don't no, like that one at all, Ant. No, that, that's a new one. Hands off my wife. <laughs> yeah, sorry. That <laughs> would be a much better title. We still have time to do more. So I think hey. uh, our director said let's go for number six next and so here we go this is from Stuart. he says um a warm welcome back to rick great to have him on the show again i've just seen a youtube video by delta airlines uh, which is a sister airlines to acme which oppressed me greatly and i hope that other airlines follow this lead once the situation is under control and things get back to normal I wonder if it would be okay to, uh, or you'd be able to play it, or at least the soundtrack on the show without getting into copyright issue. Yeah, I think we'll be okay. Uh, this video got me thinking. I wonder what will change, if anything, after the dust has settled. What, as the professionals, are your thoughts on this? Do you think a few years down the line it will be all forgotten about, a distant memory? Or do you think, uh, such as after 9-11, things will change, where we saw mandatory reinforced cockpit doors and enhanced security? I hope you guys are all okay and staying safe. We are currently self-isolating as my wife has been displaying mild symptoms. Oh, I'm sorry, Stuart. Hope she's getting better. Uh, but we're all ab- doing absolutely fine. Great to hear that Nick has also recovered well and is doing absolutely fine. Yeah, we're happy about that as well. I'm not dead yet. He's not dead yet. <laughs> anyway, um, so I, I'm going to play the first 30 seconds of the... Um, video that uh, Delta Airlines has put out there to kind of um, stress to people that they are doing things to keep the airplanes nice and clean and passengers safe. And so here we go. We've learned a lot from the experts about preventing the spread of coronavirus or COVID-19. Ensuring the highest levels of clean should not be reserved for times of crisis. It's why we are making a commitment to transform the definition of airline cleanliness and create a higher standard of clean, Delta Clean. Here's how we're leading the charge. First, starting this week, 
all domestic aircraft will undergo the same fogging process overnight that we've been using to disinfect international. And that's all I could put in there because that's all I'm allowed to do on StreamYard is 30 seconds. So if you want to see the entire video, which is longer than 30 seconds, please check out our show notes. Um, and uh, Delta did a really nice uh, job on that on that video and explaining how uh, they are uh, cleaning the airplanes and trying to keep everybody safe. And as, as far as, uh, you know, his question to us, do we think that there are going to be some uh, permanent changes in the way we do things in the future? Um, what do you think, uh, Steph? Um, oh. I think so. Um, oh, no, I'm sorry. I, I saw your mouth moving, but I didn't hear anything right away. So I thought you were muted, but then I heard your voice. So, Carry on. Sorry. It's, you know, my, my mobile studio here, I'm sure the connection is not quite as robust as my usual home studio. So yeah. um, if I cut out, just let me know. Um, mm -hmm. But I think I think there will be some long term changes. I certainly think in terms of the way that, um, you know, this, this video in particular is about how businesses clean and sanitize and do things. And I think some of that will stick around. Um, I certainly think at least for the relative short term going forward. Um, people are going to be very hesitant still to shake hands, you know, very, be very mindful of where they're coughing and sneezing, doing a good job of washing their hands, covering their mouths, all that, that good stuff. I think that's probably not going to change anytime soon. It's funny, we've actually, they've, they've started to show that some of those measures alone have not only had an impact on COVID-19 stuff, but even with regular seasonal flu, it's helped decrease those numbers. So, you know, might not be a bad idea, even if we're not dealing with a pandemic going forward in terms of cleanliness and, and not sharing germs with each other to maybe adopt some of these new hygiene standards. Um, my fear, though, is that as people, we kind of have short-term memories about these things, you know, over a couple of years, a decade. If it doesn't come back again, if it's not part of our daily lives, we do tend to forget those things. And could we end up right back where we were in terms of, you know, cleanliness standards and hygiene standards? I could see that. I think that's possible. Yeah. What do you think, Rick? <laughs> Yeah, I I, um, I tend to think you know along the lines of what Steffi's saying there, it's it's true. And and I've I've actually um um when I flew back home the other day, it it really did show. You know, um, some people are wearing the masks, some are not. Um, definitely no handshakes, which is which is kind of weird. You know, um, and uh, I yeah, I think I think this is gonna this is gonna be here for a while. This this this. It's. I don't think I. At least in the near future, that 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 flying is going to be the way it was before this whole thing uh, happened. I don't. Know. Which is which is kind of sad because flying as it is as it was before this started was already kind of bland, but now even more so. Oh look at look at Nick. <laughs> it's a good look. It's a good. He's look, he's Nick. taking it to extremes. <laughs> he's he's covered his entire face. Hello. Oh, Sorry, we didn't want to see it. <laughs> oh, oh wait. Rick is going to put a dog over his face. Instead of Aww. a piece of uh, zebra's anatomy, which is what Jeff's wearing. <laughs> this, this, one, this one will bite the virus away. It's part of my rump reader um, schooling. Uh, yeah. Get up. You're a very yeah. good rump reader. Thank you. You know, it wouldn't surprise me, Rick, if um, a bit like our security standards, uh, mm -hmm. airlines weren't required to operate a level of sanitary standards uh, that that could be changed uh, by uh, their government or by the World Health Organization uh, or by ICAO would probably be more appropriate, um, such that 
when there's no threat, you can go back to a basic standard. But when a threat starts to appear, then you need to implement various checks on your passengers and ad adopt a much higher level of sanitary cleaning on the aircraft. So, um, you know, I, I think that would probably be yeah. an appropriate change. I think so as well. And and, and I think, you know, it, it, I think it goes a step beyond that as well, because now you have to deal with liability. You know, if something happens, someone gets sick. When did that start? How did we allow it to get to this point? So it's it's sadly, sadly, I think I think the the uh, the liability portion of it's going to be what's going to make, make the permanent change stay permanent. Uh, and and I'm just pains me to say think that it would hopefully be because people want to be healthy, but that's mm -hmm. not going to be the main. No, and, and, if, and exactly, I, exactly right, Steffi. I think I think it's, it's it's the liability aspect of it. You know, nobody wants to be held liable for someone no. um, getting sick and then eventually getting sued over it. So that's true. But I don't care what drives it, whether it be a, a room full of uh, lawyers or an international organization. So long as it happens, and so long as mm -hmm. it does it in a timeful and controlled way, I think it would be great. Exactly right. I think most passengers also would just like to see cleaner uh, cabins, uh, particularly on short haul where there's not a lot of time on the turnarounds to get in and, and do a deep clean. Um, for it to happen every night, I think it's essential, but it, certainly I think people deserve to have uh, their immediate area tray tables and things uh, quickly cleansed on each flight. Yeah. 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 So there's a, there's a silver lining there. Yeah, I think so too. No, but I'm I'm afraid as well. The the concern that Steph has that over time, you know, remember after 9/11, we were really really into the security thing, and then as time went on, you know, nothing had happened, and we started you know getting content with the way it used to be. You know, I'll know there are some things that have carried on since that time, uh, but uh, yeah, I think it's just human nature, isn't it? Definitely. Yeah, I'm yeah, afraid so, so, and driven know, by the, economics. If the immediate threat's not mm -hmm. there. Yeah, exactly. Yep. All right. Um, let's see. Let's look at number five. I think I meant to do that and I, uh, I, I skipped it. So um, this is from Pacific Northwest Hemp. Okay. That's an interesting name. Um, my wife was reading some Twitter memes to me out loud. Yes. Shelter in place has had an impact. She got to one that was pilot-related and inadvertently read the simulator as the stimulator. I thought it was funny at first, but then I couldn't stop laughing when I realized the stimulator is the perfect nickname for Jeff's mustache. Uh, family show, ladies and gentlemen. Family show. <laughs> I think we'd I'm need a ladies uh, view <laughs> no, on this. No, no, I'm list. not going near that. <laughs> but you're a doctor you're perfectly qualified to go I mean, near it it would be entirely inappropriate for me to say something like free mustache rides yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay um, ah, I, I don't it. really understand what that means at all uh, so uh, let's can i on. tell you that quick story about uh, one of my friends uh, sure he ejected out of a phantom. He was a navigator, but that's beside the point. He ejected out of a phantom and uh, ended up in hospital because he had a, a very sore back. And he, he was in his uh, room the next day, and a young nurse walked in and asked him if he was the pilot who ejaculated. <laughs> <laughs> mm. <Similar> okay. <laughs> different mm. meanings, vastly different meanings. Yes. Uh, Family show, ladies and gentlemen. Family show. <laughs> or Dana is uh, coming. He just called in to uh, express his um, amazement about that. Wow. 
Thank you. <laughs> Apparently, for those who care to look up the origins of this word, there is a dated meaning of it um, that could actually be appropriate for those last comments. Right, like a shout, a short outburst like a or a yell. Yeah, or something we like just that. heard Dana's exactly. ejaculation right there. Yes. Here's uh, Dana <laughs> ejaculating again. again. Wow. There, yeah, or, very good. Or here's uh, Nick. Brilliant. Well, kind of a high pitched. <laughs> Nick. Yes. No, that's me. Okay. Short and sharp. <laughs> All right. Let's uh, move on, shall we? I Good think be best. Um, Texas Charlie, number 11. He says, those darn Cirrus pilots think they own the road. I mean, taxiway. Hey. Yeah. What's he saying about those Cirrus pilots? He says, they think they own the road. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know. I know some Cirrus pilots. <laughs> we Sounds do. Sounds about right. Too. Um, not especially thrilling audio, just that I think that some Cirrus pilots probably also drive BMWs, <laughs> Texas Charlie. Well, now we know how Texas Charlie feels about Cirrus pilots and drivers of BMWs. Um, yeah, us Audi drivers, we're perfect. <laughs> yes, you are in every way. Um, Absolutely. Let's see. It got a little bit of a, this, the beginning of this, um, I think it's from uh, Bass Aviation, VAS Aviation. Uh, YouTube and um, this part of it is just the the part at the front where we see the offending Cirrus maneuvering um, around a not around <laughs> actually right under the wing of a an A321 at Sanford um, Orlando uh, Airport and here we go. Who still had ground personnel around and was starting yeah. up? They were still uh, pushing back, and uh, the tug is still connected. Oh. And then we see on the right wing a Cirrus going kind oh, of. Look, he's giving them the bird as well. <laughs> what a rude driver. <laughs> typical, huh? It's typical. Pilots. All, right, but just, all right. To be fair, though, to be fair. <laughs> Did you did you notice did you notice that the uh, the the nose landing gear of the three twenty one wasn't on the line so I, that wasn't the best that wasn't the best pushback job yeah but you know what it's a good thing it up. wasn't because <laughs> well that's, but you know had it been there though they got yeah, wouldn't there wouldn't have been that. any room for the series to get uh, that's true yeah. so the series yeah. probably well, thought you know just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should do something exactly yeah, that's true. I, I did hear through the grapevine that the um, instructor pilot in that Cirrus uh, is is no longer instructing for that company at uh, Sanford mm. Airport. I don't know if that's true or not. I'm surprised. Yeah. Yeah, he now works for Evil Knievel's Flight Services. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Do we still have time, uh, Liz, for um, Liz another one? Time for seven. Okay, seven? seven. All right. Uh, uh, hold on. Let me double check. What maybe 11? Seven and... She said you could do number seven to finish off. Maybe Nick added that audio. I don't know what that means. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Um, okay. This will take some doing from me. This is from Marcos. Uh, good afternoon, all. I do, not rem- or, uh, yeah, I do not remember the APG. You talked about the ILS approach, and um, I'm not, if I'm not wrong, Rick did a very good explanation about the IL- ILS, Instrument Landing System. Um, and to contribute... With that, there is an event that happened on July 29th, 2000 with an Air New Zealand Boeing 767 flight, uh, November Z60. There are uh, some videos on YouTube explaining the event. And uh, let me see. I think I can find the um, 
the video here, so just bear with me. I'll share my screen and we'll hear just a little bit of the beginning of the video because I just love hearing these accents. As professional pilots, we spend a lot of time doing cross-checks. These are based on our knowledge of how aircraft works combined with our understanding of human error. Cross-checking of the aircraft and ourselves is designed to trap errors and prevent them creating a problem for either ourselves or our passengers. Okay, anyway, it's a really good um, video, and we'll have a link to it in the show notes. I didn't notes. quite understand that. I thought a cross-check was a girl in the bio who didn't want you to pester her. <laughs> she, yeah, I've run into a lot of cross-checks. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, New Zealanders. Anyway, as, as we watch... Uh, okay, what? Sorry. I was going to say. Oh, I was going to say, um, Air New Zealand made fun of themselves a few years ago with the. Uh, the uh, oh, they did, Santa didn't they? One of their safety videos. Yeah, yeah it was very good. Their safety yeah. video with Santa, where Santa couldn't understand the requests coming in from the uh, kids from New Zealand or something like that. Yeah, yeah. it was good. Interesting accent. I love it, though. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, so um, so I think we all watched this uh, this this reenactment of the uh, flight sixty, and. Um, Nick, did you um, did did you have any comments regarding it? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, guys, but they got the crew who are actually involved to climb into a simulator uh, and then reenact um, how they went around when they realised that there was an error with their ILS approach, and it just sounded so funny, rather lame, as they all simultaneously tried to call the go around. I thought it sounded very realistic, so let, let's hear it. Okay? <laughs> Are, are you ready? Here we go. Yeah. Go around. 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 Very well. In the heat of the moment. Go around. Go around. Go around. Go around. Yeah, whatever. Go around. <laughs> if you insist. No, but uh, yeah, they, they, they did the right thing. You know? They did? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no doubting that. Yeah. Well, because, you know, you can always go around. And that's what they did. That was the right thing to do. Absolutely. Yes. Not criticizing that at all. Which I just felt sorry for them in the (laughs) gym having to reenact it. Clearly clearly not actors. Yes. (laughs) Clearly clearly not. If you want to watch the entire thing, including that little excerpt that uh, Nick provided for us, uh, again, ITSN in the show notes. And yeah. go ahead. I think, I think, I think, no, I was going to say, I think that, uh, that, uh, Marcos was talking about the, uh, the, uh, episode we did on the seven, four accident that, uh, that, that, uh, mm-hmm. capture that false glide slope. And yeah, the difference between that one and this one is that the seven, four, that was a false glide slope. This was just an unmonitored, uh, ILS, but you know, there were no flags, proper indications. So at the end of the day, you know, it, it yeah. would have had and good on them it, for, for making for realizing it didn't match up and it didn't make sense yeah exactly. something doesn't look right and you know we hear so yeah. many accidents where they they say this doesn't look right but they keep doing it anyway and in this you know, case finally they get, go exactly. <laughs> you get that feeling at the pit of your stomach going yeah i don't know yep. and that's right yeah, then and there just go around exactly right yep yeah, you one know, of the things I was look at it and make sure. Yeah, one of the things I was very upset was when our company took out the obligatory call of the height check over the uh, final marker. Oh, well, over the final fix. Sorry, uh, where we used to do an altitude 
uh, comparison with the plate. Mm. And they said, oh, you, we still want you to do it, but we want you to do it silently, which, of course, means that most guys just don't do it. Right, Because exactly. there's no requirement to mouth it. And I thought, well, you're just leading yourselves into trouble doing that. But yep. there you go. Mm -hmm. I always brief that yeah. when I'm briefing ILS approaches. I talk about the uh, that glide slope check altitude. Uh, usually it's uh, the same altitude as the glide slope intercept. Oh, it's uh, an but but not always, and yeah. so it's always good to that make is, sure that is that is your last chance to make sure, especially in IMC when you, you know obviously when you can't see anything outside, and it's your last chance to make sure that you are indeed where you think you are. Yeah. Absolutely. So. Yeah. Uh, Texas Charlie uh, number ten said, uh, "Bring him back quick." He said, um, "He sent this little uh, graphic that says everything was fine until we retired the MD80s." Uh, it has an American Airlines MD-80 uh, in the picture. And he says, coincidence? I don't think so. So good call from Texas Charlie that we need to bring the MD-80s back at American. We're still flying them over here at Acme. So come on. They're still good airplanes. Um, and uh, is that it? Was there another one that we... Uh, I think number we're getting, 12, uh, number 12. But we're at an hour. But number 12 is... The That's okay. We're going to keep going. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's going to be a little bit longer show, but that's because we know all of you are at home, not doing anything. So you have the time to listen to a little bit more. Um, and uh, this is from Sean and he sent us an, an article from uh, the, uh, let's see, what is it? The wall street journal, uh, WSJ uh, FAA is making changes to ATC to keep them open in light of the virus changes include reduced staff or staffing to match the reduction in flights. And uh, so the article just basically says what they're doing to, to uh, try to cover everything. And we, we know maybe you do as well. Some people out there that uh, do this for a living and uh, they, their, their schedules definitely have been modified. The, the shift work they're doing now is quite a bit different than what they were doing before this whole COVID-19 thing. Hey Jeff, quick question. I, yeah. I obviously haven't flown in a couple of months, uh, mm -hmm. and certainly you know, pre COVID nineteen. You 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 said you were up what last week? Yeah, last Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. Are are you are you getting a lot more direct routings, or are you getting more? Uh, yeah. how, how's it how's it changed? Yeah, they are definitely um, you know giving us uh, more direct routings because there's just not as much traffic up there to conflict with, um, and uh, that's you know our our company has sent out some some memos to us to kind of, you know, not get complacent when, you know, you're, you're up there flying because things are different. They don't sound the same. They don't feel the same. Um, but, uh, and a lot of times, you know, getting a direct to destination isn't always the best thing for us. I mean, we can sometimes save money and save time by going on the actual routing that uh, has been provided for us from our dispatchers, uh, based on winds and that, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, it's um, definitely see something that you're you're seeing. I haven't done a l heck of a lot of flying since the uh, the whole outbreak, especially in the last few weeks. But uh, from what I have experienced, yeah, it's it's definitely a, a different world out there. Reminds so, me uh, of coming into London very early one morning, and we had a medical emergency, so we were given uh, direct to Senefix four two seven right, I think, um, and told to maintain high speed. 
and it's very interesting when you're doing that because normally you fly a pretty well-known pattern. You've got sort of mental height cues. You, you're usually much slower, uh, and you are used to how much energy the aircraft's got. When you're you're not even required to be 250 below 10, so you're coming all the way down at 300 knots uh, and straight to the center fix and trying to work out um, at what point it is appropriate to slow down. Uh, and then you suddenly realize that this airplane ain't slow. <laughs> Don't have as the room. As you thought it was going to. It was just, uh, this was the days before stabilized approaches, thank the Lord. So we got in. <laughs> but it would just be so embarrassing having been given all this priority and been told, yeah, rattle it as fast as you like, mate. Go straight, straight in there. Yeah. On dig- you go. Digging your own grave. Exactly. That's exactly what I very nearly did. What what I think what I what I find works quite well is um is um uh ten knots per mile in um in a level in a level sector you know just just, just fly level ten knots you lose ten knots well, for every that one was mile, the so. problem I was doing a constant descent <laughs> oh were you yeah. yeah a little bit more room yeah then. <laughs> there was no there was no level po- portion really? to apply that and you try slowing down when you're going down. You know what it's like. Oh, and, and 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 here's the thing. I don't. I mean, I've I've never flown an Airbus. Thank God. But <laughs> I believe that I believe that as long as the autopilot's on, you put speed brakes out. They only come out fifty percent. Is that correct? Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> That's all gone. I dumped that stuff ages it. ago. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I was hand flying anyway. So, oh, uh, where you? Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Was, I, I believe yeah. as Air, Airbus drivers up there, they, they, uh, I, I remember that because I remember it was an issue going into, uh, into uh, Quito, you know, high, high and hot altitude airports where, uh, if you get behind the uh, you know behind the airplane a little bit, and you're trying to slow down as you're coming down. You put the speed brakes out. A lot of guys, I, I used to you know right in the cockpit when I when I lived down there, yeah. you know, going from, from from the coast up to the to the uh, to the mountains. And when they got behind, or their or their or the vector was a little tight, and they were left a little high on the approach. In, in, in order to slow the airplane down, they'd actually have to disconnect the autopilot to have the speed brakes come out and their full travel. Otherwise, the only can't. Just- I don't remember that myself uh, personally, no. but uh, no. no. But there you go. I, I never looked out and saw, see them because you have to be in the cabin to be able to see the speed brakes. <laughs> but, but I, I imagine Ecam would tell you. I mean, I guess the uh, the flight control synoptic. I don't know. This is just me geeking. No, no, they just show when they're up. Oh. Hmm. That's what she said. Uh, here we <laughs> go. Hundred percent. It depends which version. Uh, Luca says fifty percent on the A three twenty, but a hundred percent on the A three nineteen. And of course, I was flying ah, the A three forty and the A three thirty. So I there you go. There you go. Yeah, that was it. Was three twenties that I was writing around in. So. Ah, there you go. Interesting. Well, you you have to have some way to force these people to manually fly the airplane. <laughs> um, now I know that now to be fair um, Nick is one of those folks that uh, always or tried to not always but tried to fly the airplane manually as much as he could to keep his skills yeah, up. I did it at least once a month yeah very nice <laughs> okay I was hoping that it was going to be more than that but. well we're okay. only flying like twice a month oh well, that's, that's true I was going to say that's how often I flew <laughs> okay good point good that's point. 50% of the time that's good there, yeah, money somebody say 50 Definitely. There's that 50% right there. All right. Well, that is it. We've run through our feedback. Uh, we do appreciate uh, all of your wonderful feedback out there, folks. If you have any questions for us regarding certain things going on, 
please send them to feedback at airlinepilotguy.com and it would make Liz very happy because she kind of freaks out when we start running short of feedback. So again, feedback at airlinepilotguy.com. There are other ways to do it as well. Go to our website uh, where you'll find the um, contact us page and a link to uh, SpeakPipe. A lot of people use SpeakPipe to make recordings. I think it limits you to, I don't know how many minutes, maybe three minutes, three minutes. Yeah. So if you have a long feedback, then you might have to call back a few times. (laughs) Actually, the better thing to do in that case is to use the recording device on your smart device, uh, your smartphone voice memos app on the iOS, and then attach that um, to your email to feedback at airlinepilotguide.com. Let's see other great things that you can find on our website are um, links to the plane tales, a lot of extra information that Captain Nick puts in to supplement his fine um, audio tales. Uh, Let's see the APG library, uh, our librarian Tiffany in uh, Buffalo. She does an absolutely stunning job with uh, managing all of the great things for you to read if you, uh, and you should have plenty of time now to find a good book or two uh, in the aviation world to to read there so check that out apg library um, merchandise um, let's see what else we have over there um, yeah i hear somebody saying something maybe no um, what else i should probably look at the website so I can remember all the diff- all the different things. You can find out about the APG crew, the community. We have the community calendar. Not a lot on there right now because of the present situation. And uh, watching the uh, videos when we do the live shows. Uh, there's a link there, uh, APG on YouTube. So much more. And uh, we're also on the social medias. Social medias. We are, and I'm going to say this quickly, and hopefully you can still hear me, because one of my headphones just died. Oh, no. uh, So you can head over to Twitter.com. We're at APG Crew. Follow all of us together there, or individually, our information is pinned to the top of that page. You can also head over to Facebook.com slash Airline Pilot Guy for lots of good community interaction and information. So see you there. And occasionally, Instagram, also at APG Crew. All right. Very good. And we're also on Slack. And uh, see if I can... Um... There's the uh, hidden microphone in, in the restroom, and guess what? Hillel, believe it or not, is in the shower again. Hillel! Hillel, it's time for time for the slack. Okay, sounds like you heard me. All right, come on over here and tell us all about slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas, we suggest episode and plain tales topics, we plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha, Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thanks, Hillel. Now you can go back and uh, take care of whatever you were doing in there and uh, make sure that you uh, make sure you wash your hands. Where's the soap? Um, right next to the sink. All right. Very good. Um, what else do we want to say before we go? Oh, we want to say thank you to our producer, director, Liz Piper in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Thank you, uh, Liz, for all your great work and direction. Hey. Uh, without it, it would be just chaos here. So. 
We do appreciate you. Indeed. It already is chaos. Well, I mean, even even more chaos, <laughs> if you can believe it. Anyway. Liz, Liz is the glue that holds us together. There she is. All right. Absolutely. And uh, until next time, next week, we uh, wish you um, clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. See you next time. Bye, everybody. Good day. Just fine. Airline, I got I.